and we're off. All right, everybody, be careful as you participate in this app because you never know who might be watching. You never know who might be siphoning off your data. You never know what foreign adversaries might be lurking and just waiting to twist everything that you might say into some sort of wider scheme to achieve geopolitical primacy. Who knows? So just, you know, beware. Hello, Richard. Hey, I'm just watching your. I'm just watching your clip. Okay, why don't you pull, why don't you uh, play it? Put it on the. Put it just on your. Uh, okay, well, phone or something. Ended. I was I was finishing it. Just ended. You want to start over? We could. Yeah, I mean, for people who hadn't heard it, it's worth like setting the uh, okay. stage for the discussion. That's <laughs> because it's it's amazing. I mean, you got to sort of sit through some of these. Yeah. So so hold on. So, so this is um. Let me just introduce this. Uh, this is Congressman Mike McCall, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Sorry, the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. And they were having a hearing today with Anthony Blinken, you know, the vaunted Secretary of State, who's just a champion that dip, dip, uh, diplomatic finesse. Um, but anyway, this was uh, McCall's opening spiel, and it almost has to be heard to, be, to be believed. So anyway, yeah, play it. Okay, here we go. Yeah. We saw weakness, and we projected weakness, not strength. Strength to get peace. When you project weakness, it does invite aggression and war. You only need to look back to Neville Chamberlain and Hitler, and uh, really the course of, of time has proven that axiom. So I think we need to start projecting more strength and deterrence. Uh, we saw not too long after the fall of Afghanistan uh, on satellite imagery the Russian Federation moving towards Ukraine. It was never a question of if, it was a question of when with Mr. Putin. And I think from what he saw, he decided it was the time. And we saw the troop presence, and then we saw the invasion. Chairman Xi, Chairman Xi's threat, threatening Taiwan as, as we speak. That's very polite uh, to call him by his name, Chairman Xi. <laughs> yeah. I know you know. What the <laughs> Honorific. I know when you're... <laughs> at the Munich Security Conference, right after the spy balloon went over the United States filming some of our most sensitive military nuclear sites. So this is an intense time, and we, we're starting to see this alliance. Not to, very similar, in my judgment, to what we saw in World War II. Russia, China... This is the only... This is the only... Analogy, now they know. Is begging Iran for weapons. He has yep. Crimea. I want to get the weapons in there to take out those Iranian drones, but they don't have them because you won't give them to them. The longer range artillery to win. I don't want to see him bleed over the winter and spring. I want to see victory, not a drawn out conflict that has no resolution in sight. 
The threat of communist China cannot be overstated. They are the number one threat to long-term security. That's why I introduced the Passive Chips Act to pull the supply chain of semiconductors out of Taiwan and China and make them here in, in the United States. But still, 90% of that advanced semiconductor manufacturing takes place in Taiwan. So when people ask, why is Taiwan important? Imagine if China invaded Taiwan tomorrow and controlled 90% of the global supply. We would be in a world <coughs> I personally think Chairman Xi is going to try to influence <laughs> person. If he fails, then I think Plan B will be a blockade and an invasion that will be on a scale that will make Ukraine look like a very small thing. A massive cyber attack. Taiwan is not prepared. We have no joint military exercises. The weapons I signed off on three years ago have yet to go into country. I don't understand why this takes so long. And if we don't have the deterrence, like we didn't have the deterrence with Ukraine. I called for sanctions and weapons before the invasion. I think we should be doing the same thing with Taiwan. We need to arm them and prepare them to provide deterrence along with AUKUS and the Quad to deter the Chinese from an invasion, which I think, again, would be devastating. Iran is at 85% enrichment. You know, the bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki had 80% enrichment. They're already there, Mr. Secretary. Wow, Gary stuff. And and it kept going, but I had to, you know, cut it off at a reasonable uh, length for a clip. But yeah, I mean, it's just, let me, uh, what can I even say? He's, I don't know. Richard, give me your reaction to that, because this is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Republican, right, who, for one thing, was supposed to be one of these Republicans who we were being warned was going to be complicit in this whole isolationist turn at the behest of Kevin McCarthy or something, when, oh, by the way, we don't have to listen to this clip because it's even dopier. <laughs> it actually, may, it might be worth listening to, but let's not. But people should go look for it maybe afterwards because Kevin McCarthy gave his own spiel at some Republican retreat, I think, uh, yesterday or the day before where he almost you know it was the same theme it was World War II he was saying that he was like the student of history so that's how he knows Neville Chamberlain <laughs> yeah. and it was like you know just the same sort of kind of laughably superficial parameters of an analogy that he was transposing onto current events with China and Russia having this alliance and North Korea and Iran, like off on the side as sort of satellite alliance states or whatever. I mean, and he even like gets sort of emotional recounting how he was first contemplating this because a few years ago he was at Normandy for like the anniversary of D-Day with Nancy Pelosi and he was just overcome with emotion and was really 
dedicating himself at that point on to figure out how to make it so that there weren't so many, you know, dead young men in a graveyard at any time. And what can we do to prevent it? So I guess this is their idea of what to, of how to, how to prevent it by like kind of willing a world war into existence. So I, I don't know. It's, it's ah. crazy. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm struck by, you know, just something that I was struck by before with these types is that they, there's no like argument like about Ukraine. There's no real argument. Like, you know, you get the impression that, there's not like any kind of nuance in this worldview, right? It's like they're all never, they'll, you know, they're all Hitlers, and everyone who wants anything, you know, besides what he wants to do is Neville, Neville Chamberlain, and it's just very, you know, it's 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 describing maximalist goals. I mean, look, he says she's going to interfere in our election, and then he's going to um, invade Taiwan right afterwards, right? I mean, these are like uh, actual predictions, right? If they don't happen, he's not gonna, you know, nobody's gonna hold him accountable for it. He'll just say, well. Trying to get on something else, right? Well, no, he can say, "Oh, look, we successfully deterred it." I don't think they'd even say that because they want they they would say we have to keep yeah we have to keep fighting and you know they're trying to they're trying to scare you. So I don't know if they would you know nobody's even gonna no one's gonna even bring it up. I mean, he's never gonna be asked about it by anyone. Um, And yeah, I mean, the level of thought you know put forward by these people is uh, is frightening. with the, with somebody like this this guy M- Michael McCall, I don't even really get the impression that he's that much of a sort of emotionally zealous ideologue, or he has some kind of passion about really kind of emphasizing in extra histrionic terms like the Hitler Chamberlain stuff. It's just the only reference point he has to justify his kind of just knee jerk foreign policy disposition it's not like he's especially wedded to that sort of to like the historical resonance of that analogy right it's just all he knows and it's just the linchpin of this kind of instinctive worldview that he's been inculcated with it's just like it's just just like a generic republican hawkishness yeah i think that's right he's uh yeah you're saying he's not an emotional He's not an emotional. He's not an emotional man. He's just a, uh, <laughs> well, just yeah. a going through going through the motions, and he's not sitting at home at night crying over the victims of World War II and how it all could have been prevented if there wasn't for Neville Chamberlain. Right? He's, just <laughs> of, he's just sort of he's just sort of there. Uh, yeah, it's just can, his job. It's just like who he is. Just his essence. Was this the TikTok? There was a TikTok hearing today, wasn't there? Yeah, this was a separate hearing. The TikTok hearing was its own thing. Oh, and by the way, I think as we speak, maybe it just ended, but they had a special evening hearing where this select committee that the Republicans made sure to uh, comp- compile, uh, they held an, an evening hearing because they have this now recurring series of additional China-focused hearings. And tonight it was another sort of I think this probably was a hyper-emotional kind of whirlwind discussion of the Uyghur situation because, I don't know, I guess Republicans don't have anything to do with their legislative power other than just clamor about China nonstop, Um, which, okay, I mean, I guess that's what the voters want um, as they perceive it. I don't know if that's actually what the voters want or if that's just what they've been kind of 
told that they ought to want for some vague <coughs> national security reason, but that's what it is. I mean, every time I look at something that the congressional Republicans are doing, and the Democrats are the same, but the Republicans have the majority in the House, it's just like this never-ending drumbeat about some aspect of some China thing. And it's yeah. just like intensifying as the weeks go by. It is crazy, right? It is how crazy how it, how it uh, brings the entire party together. Even these people are against Ukraine are just the only reason for being against Ukraine is that it distracts from China. I mean, that's all they say. And so the other people who say fight, you know, China and everyone else, and these other people who say just everything is a distraction from China. I mean, they really, they really do. I mean, like the war on terror was like, oh, was that just because of 9-11? And then you think back, it's like, you know, they took so quickly to it and they made it the center of their politics because this is like conservatism. They need a foreign enemy. I mean, this you know they're 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 talking about you know immigration half the time. Uh, you know when they don't have a foreign policy thing, you know they talk about immigration, and then they had the uh, you know the Soviet Union obviously, and then they were sort of lost for a little while, um, and then they you know got the terrorism thing, and now they got the China thing. It really just has consumed them, um, and yeah, this is going to be Republican politics from now on, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think the reason why he calls him Chairman Xi is not do some sort of, you know, weird sort of out-of-place honorific title, <laughs> but because they have this conceit that by constantly referring to China as the Chinese Communist Party or always using CCP or Chinese Communist Party rather than just saying China, that they're almost rejecting the legitimacy of She's claimed to be a head of state in that he's just a party apparatchik ultimately, right? That's what his title as, quote, chairman would connote because it's just he's chairman of this particular party, not like the head of the state apparatus. Um, that's, I, I think, the reason why they insist on calling him that. But I don't, uh, I don't know for sure. So I think it's sort of like a uh, this little, like, logical... Uh, construction that they've whipped up yeah maybe i mean the chinese communist party thing is obviously uh right um but the chairman she right you would call him either chairman she or president she right you could just say she i guess putin they don't call him president putin they just say putin president would make him seem like like a real sometimes they'll say president putin but i mean but, but but if you go out of your way to say chairman she then you're chairman emphasizing she. his party role rather than his state role yeah. Not that there's like a necessary. I mean, I don't know enough about the nuances of the composition of the Chinese state to to say one way or another whether it's like an intelligible distinction. But they're trying to assert that distinction to kind of like sort of delegitimize him in a sense. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. That's the thing. They say Chairman Kim. Did they say Chairman Dang when Dang Xiaoping when they were like making friends with China? Did they share and say uh, Chairman Deng? That would be I would be. I don't remember. I don't well, I mean, you were you were pretty young when Chairman Deng was around. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I shouldn't have said I don't remember. I would have never had any awareness of it, probably. Yeah, uh, yeah. I gotta remember. Remember Hu Jintao? I think he just died recently, actually, or yeah, maybe his predecessor. I don't remember him being referred to as Chairman. Chinese names are just too short. Like to say who or just to sound she, she sounds too short, and you can't say you can say Putin because that's two syllables. And yeah, all, you need something in front of it. Well, I mean, Bush, people don't have a problem saying it's one syllable or 
Bush. No, but they would say President. They would say President Bush. Are you, you know, what, you know what it also might be. They are pushing this theory, which may be true in a sense, that she is the most um, absolutist ruler of China, or has the tightest grip on power in China since Mao. And Chairman Mao was kind of like the common reference uh, for for him, right? So they they might be trying to invoke Mao to kind of you know import some of the you know, just assumed sinisterness of of Mao Zedong onto so, Xi Jinping. Uh, so do they have the authority to ban? Now? What's the word I would TikTok? Do they have the do they actually have the authority to ban it? Uh, well, there's been a flurry of legislative activity to enact the authorities to enable some wing of the government to ban it. Um, Trump tried to, if you remember, put through an executive order, or at least he claimed he tried to do it, uh, and it was struck down by the courts. Uh-huh. So they're going through a legislative route here, and there have been you know, a whole slew of different proposals and the one that's gaining traction because it's uh, it was introduced by the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, and his sort of Republican counterpart, and it's like this thoroughly sort of bipartisan measure that kind of is at the center of gravity of both parties' caucuses. Uh, John Thune, I think, is also co-sponsoring it, who's like, you know, the whip of the Republican caucus. They uh, Warner introduced that bill called the Restrict Act earlier this month, and that probably is going to be the version of this attempt to grant the authorities to ban TikTok that's going to be the closest to the one that ultimately gets enacted. And the um, the White House, you know, right when it was introduced, Jake Sullivan put out a statement endorsing it, meaning that Biden would yeah. sign it. Yeah, and gonna, why, of course Biden would sign it because if you actually read the text of the bill, which no one will, and I, I, I tweeted a few screenshots of it earlier today, but if you read the text of the bill, it's not just like it's a one-sentence bill saying TikTok is hereby banned. No, yeah. it's a whole sort of a very involved series of new authorities that are conferred to the executive – so that ultimately the president can just make a unilateral decision to ban what's called a holding of a certain designated foreign adversary. And the foreign adversaries are listed as this, you know, the, the standard six, I think it is. So it's not just China, of course, it's Russia, um, Venezuela, North Korea, Iran, Cuba. So any holding now that can be asserted to be tied to any one of those six countries, the president can make a unilateral determination to use whatever tactics he sees fit to prohibit that entity from being able to be you know, used in any kind of commerce in the U.S. And so on that authority, Biden can move to ban TikTok, right? But he can move to ban like a million other things potentially, and all he has to do is in, invoke national security, and there's really no recourse, at least based on the text of this bill. So it's not surprising that he and the White House would have immediately endorse its passage because it's 
a massive, uh, you know, granting of additional new national security powers to the presidency, of course, in relation to some perceived foreign threat, which is almost always how the president ends up getting more and more unchecked powers handed over to him. Yeah, it sounds like it's uh, like the sanctions authority. Right, that's all it's just given to the executive branch and they can just announce sanctions on their own without well, doing anything else. Kind of, but this is way more sweeping because he's banning a whole social media outlet. Or like it would give them the authority to like ban something, not just sanction it, but actually prohibit well, Americans from transacting is. with it. No, that's what saying, but that's what sanctioning is. Sanctioning is prevent, preventing transaction with some entity or some things from some country. So. I'm wondering yeah. actually what's, what's But what's, this is like a domestic thing. You know, it's within yeah. the United States. Yeah, that sounds new. It's officially yeah. owned by China. It's not officially owned by China. It's owned by somebody from China. Well, I mean, it's hard to really nail down the facts on this. Because I didn't watch... Did you see any of the hearing that they had today? I didn't no, see... Someone, um, just told me, someone told me yeah. that they asked the CEO of TikTok whether uh, he supports genocide. <laughs> no, I saw that part. It was just, you know, a cheap shot where some congresswoman was trying to pin him down. Who, who was it? Say, uh, I think it was Ann Wagner, uh-huh. uh, Republican congresswoman from Missouri, if I'm not mistaken. Or somebody who was like a rough approximation of Ann Wagner, Republican congresswoman from Missouri. Um, basically, she said, you know, do you... Um, do you denounce the persecution of Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang, or however you pronounce that province? You know, and he kind of just deflected because he said, look, I'm here to discuss TikTok and the issues associated with it. And they were accusing him of dodging the issue because, like, he wouldn't give a flat answer. I mean, I think he, he ended up saying, of course, any, like, allegations of human rights concern him or whatever. But it's clearly he didn't want to, like, get into the weeds of that issue. Probably because, like... <laughs> Frankly, I hadn't gotten into the weeds of that issue for a long time either. It was just sort of something that was on my periphery and I never really thought to look that deeply into. But once I did, for the first time, look somewhat thoroughly into it, it's really strange how little of it seems to pass muster on the basis of any kind of just basic empirical test. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the things I guess you're obliged to do now is just sort of reflexively agree that it's just something to denounce as a, quote, genocide and that China needs to be, you know, cast into the dustbin of history for this genocide. I don't know. It's very, very odd. Um, if you read the UN report that was put out in last August, not that the UN is like the be-all, end-all, but, you know, it's one of the, you know, few somewhat impartial resources available to actually sort of ascertain some of the facts associated with this allegation of a genocide. In this report, it's, um, and they did get some access, maybe not totally unlimited access to investigative sites in, in China. But they said they said that they can't, they couldn't verify a single death associated with this Uyghur genocide, as it's called. So, I don't know, if your conception of what genocide is is so fluid that yeah, it could encompass. Well, there's there's never been, everything there's never from been the Nazi Holocaust to yeah, an event right. uh, an event which has no verified deaths associated with it. 
I don't know. I kind of question the um, utility yeah, I've never of that seen anyone. I've never seen anyone accuse uh, China of killing uh, Uyghurs. Uh, the um, you know look at the look at the birth the birth rate plummeted um, in Xinjiang, and that seems like a legitimate like policy. But it, and you're going to say, well, birth rates go down in a lot of places, but this is this was really fast. I mean, this one just really collapsed like overnight. Um, in like one or two years, so yeah, I believe there's something you know serious going on. But um, China has a has a very intrusive or a very sort of assertive, however you want to characterize it, sort of birth control policy yeah, for the entire population. It wasn't just limited to Uyghurs. Yeah. Although now, although now they're trying to encourage uh, more births, but the, with the Uyghurs, it looks like at the same time they were. Uh, yeah, at the same time they were encouraging intermarriage between the Han Chinese and the Uyghurs. Yeah, and people. Well, actually, that's. I mean, that's like one of the things that people call uh, cultural genocide. I think in some circumstances, you'll hear that that's not a good thing. Um, that's what the government could be doing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's real. I mean, it's probably exaggerated. I mean, the million, the number they get of a million or two million or whatever they say. I mean, there's no way to verify that. That's completely unverified. Uh, although it does look like it's it's bad, and it's not technically genocide, right? I, I know. I know. Nobody seems to explicitly allege that China's killing people over the course of the Uyghur genocide, right? But that's what I think the common understanding would be of the word genocide, because the common understanding of the word genocide derives from the Nazi Holocaust, yeah. although, although, which is characterized by systematic about, extermination. You'll hear about cultural genocide. You'll hear about that, like sometimes. So, like people do think that. There's people yeah. Your connection is kind of uh, iffy. Okay. How about now? No, better? better now. Better now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then if you look at like the process that led to it even being designated a genocide in the first place by the U.S. government, it came about because on the very last day of the Trump administration, so January 20th, 2021, Mike Pompeo, on his way out the door, issued this last-minute, you know, determination that China was guilty of genocide uh, in Xinjiang as, on behalf of the State Department institutionally. And then Blinken, when he came in, just accepted that designation, and Biden then eventually endorsed it, and there was no real debate. There's no like real sort of airing of facts to kind of come to that conclusion. And the the source that's overwhelmingly relied on, maybe even exclusively relied on by Pompeo to make the determination is this guy, Adrian Zenz, who I think also testified at this House Republican thing tonight as a witness, who, you know, it's just, he's like a blinkered think tank guy at this fringe, um, you know, hardcore, you know, legitimately hardcore right-wing think tank called the uh, Jamestown Institute, which is run by, like, the Victims of Communism Fund or something from, you know, the 80s. And his methodology was all whacked out, and a lot of it was just kind of conjecture and statistical extrapolation. And... You know, maybe there might have been some information that could be verifiable, but like it was never, it was not anywhere near, or didn't seem anywhere near conclusive enough to like make an official determination on behalf of the U.S. government that this thing was a quote genocide. Because once that genocide determination was made by 
the U.S. It had a cascading effect where you had, you know, the Canada Parliament followed suit, the U.K. Parliament, um, you know, it was like a domino effect type thing after the U.S. kind of broke the dam on, on that. And then all of a sudden it becomes just sort of uh, assumed truth that this thing is rightly classified as a genocide. I'm not defending it as a good thing or a bad thing, really. I'm just sort of wary of the lax approach to the accumulation of, like, the requisite facts to make such a weighty claim. Uh, yeah, that's extrapolation. So. He took, like, there was, like, some village, and they are a couple villages where they saw, like, the number of people who, like, they were told were locked up of that village. Uh, and then they uh, extrapolated and said, well, if every village in Chichang had similar numbers, well, you know, it'll be a million or whatever. Although the, I mean, the... You know, according to me, they have satellites. You know, they do show this like satellites, but it's like these giant presence that are being. Your connection's not great again. I don't know what you're going back and forth uh, doing, but maybe when I maybe when I walk. Yeah, now it's good. Maybe I have to stay, just uh, stay in one place. Uh, the, uh, uh, but the, I mean, the, they do. I mean, they do show these news stories. They do have like these satellite images, and I've seen like underground reporting of like giant facilities going up. And you know, who knows? Maybe that's nothing. Uh, but maybe it's something I don't know. Like the you know the report, it's not like they're like inviting the world to come visit the Chinese were inviting the world to come visit Xinjiang and see what's going on. I mean, it does seem like they're acting like they're hiding something. The birth rate thing, the other things. I believe. I mean, I believe it's a really big thing. I don't think there's. Uh, I don't think there's good way to get them. Uh, well, I don't think they're acting like they're hiding something now. I mean, there's no real. There hasn't been ind- indication since 2019 that any of these sort of, uh, you know, work facilities is what the Chinese government called them. Others would call them, you know, the genocidal camps or whatever. Those haven't even been active for like four years now. So so they're not hiding anything anymore. There was like a two-year period when its claim, like the height of this happened. It was from like 2017 to 2019. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a real thing. Look, the birth rate. I'm looking at the birth rate now. It's uh, it's it's one year. It happened in literally one year. It it, it half the birth rate halved in literally one year, uh, and so yeah, I mean that's you know that's probably something, um, and that was the year that this was supposedly happened, which makes me think it's, it really was happening. I mean they were really clapping down on this population, and now it's probably yeah you're right, but it probably passed, and it's just sort of a lower level of repression. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think, you know, based on my reading into the subject, I wouldn't say that, quote, nothing happened or that, like, there's not something that could be said to have happened. I'm just wary of it, like, having to be reflexively grouped into this category of genocide as though it, like, belongs in the same phenomenological category with the Nazi Holocaust. Yeah. I mean, it well, just it, doesn't it, make any well, sense. That, I mean, that, that ship is sailed. Genocide being cheapened. I mean, look at it. <laughs> genocide these days i mean we're, we're beyond that yeah i, I like that my my rule of thumb is that genocide just means bad yeah <laughs> that's 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 the definition now yeah so did you um follow anything coming out of the she putin meeting uh i was you know it's weird i mean they, they you know the reporting is weird it's like they keep calling each other dear friend 
and they keep saying dear friend this and dear friend that and Xi Jinping says we're doing the most important thing in like a hundred years did you see there was like a hot mic moment I don't know if it was a hot mic yeah it was right as she was getting into his car as he but, was departing but but it's like but there's no like there's not like they some agreement they signed we're gonna like merge or like become like allies or become like have a defense you know mutual defense treaty there was nothing like that well right? they did put out they, they did put out <laughs> mutual they did put out joint statements um, no, what, what I, they? which I read uh, well, one of them was pretty lengthy and, you know, had some significant parts to it. I mean, there was nothing groundbreaking in the sense that there was no, like, climax where they say, and now we officially declare ourselves, like, joint <laughs> military, you know, military allies, like the Axis powers or something. Um, but, you know, there was some significant stuff where... So what are they get, what are they get to do? Well, I mean, I think the most significant thing was it was sort of formalized. I mean, there had been sort of, uh, there had been allusions to this, if you looked at some of their statements for a while now, but... It was sort of formalized that China now shares, endorses, and finds itself also sort of uh, harmed by Russia's grievance regarding NATO's activity in Europe, and Russia endorses China's grievance about, you know, the ramping up of, you know, military activity in the quote into Pacific as the US calls it with like the AUKUS alliance and uh, you know just the general militarizing trend that this is sort of ushering in 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 the vicinity of, of China and so they're kind of like you know uh, proclaiming sort of expansionist prerogatives that align with one another or or or, or pro, uh, prerogatives that like geographically wouldn't have been in their ordinary sort of sphere, but because China and Russia res- respectively have this certain grievance, then they they've kind of converged on the set of grievances. But what, what, what do they say? So you, what, what, hold what, on, what, let, what, me, what, let me let me let me pull it up real quick. I'll read it so I have it verbatim. Um, it's worth reading because I mean there are actually two statements that they put out. One was more economic focused. Okay. So uh, the, the, the upshot of this whole thing is these two statements. Well, the the upshot in terms of like the fo- uh, formal texts that were released in the wake uh-huh. of the, uh, the 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 summit or the meeting. Hold on. There's Reuters. What it says about Ukraine. It's better to get, to get the uh, to get the texts. Ah. Uh. Right, I'm reading. I'm reading uh, the part about Ukraine. Uh, you know, it, it all sounds like nonsense boilerplate or sustainable resolution. Okay, here, here, here's uh, a, here's a quote. So here's what they jointly said: the parties insist that NATO strictly comply with the obligations relating to the regional and defensive character of the said organization. They call on NATO to respect the sovereignty of other states, their security and interests, civilizational, blah 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 blah. The parties express great concern over the ongoing strengthening of NATO's ties with the countries of the Asia-Pacific region on military and security issues, as well as undermining by the Organization of Regional Peace and Security. The parties oppose the formation of the Asia-Pacific of exclusive closed block structures, blah, blah, blah. 
the parties note the negative impact on peace and stability in this region of the Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States, driven by the Cold War mentality. So this alone is significant because almost never um, has a leader of China singled out the United States for criticism by name in the way that she has now several times just within the past maybe two or three weeks. Um, Kevin Rudd, who's the former prime minister of Australia, and who's sort of got China, who's like a Sinophile and has like a long history with China, you know, fluent in Chinese, and actually now has just become the U.S. the Australian ambassador to the U.S. But he's like a China, you know, he's like actually a legitimate sort of China expert, if you want to use the term expert in any kind of other way. He said that he couldn't recall when she first made a statement two weeks ago or so now. Um, criticizing directly the United States the last time a Chinese uh, leader had done that. And now now they're reiterating it in a formal statement in in relation to... (laughs) Was that what the whole conference... I mean, that's all that came out of the conference. They called, they criticized Biden by name. I mean, I'm just wondering... Not Biden by name, the United States. Okay, well, okay, they criticized United, but like, what is, there has to be, what is the, what is the tangible thing that's going to come out of this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we know everything. I mean, here's another. Here's some other interesting parts. The parties express serious concern about the military biological activities of the United States of America okay. carried on their narrow national territory and beyond, which poses serious threat to the security of other states and entire regions, and demand that the United States provide explanations on this matter and not carry out any biological activities that are contrary to the said convention. What do they mean by They read the COVID release? I don't know. Um... Maybe. I mean, when I first read that, the thing that popped into my mind was like the allegations by Russia earlier on in the Ukraine war about the bio labs. Okay. Um, well, I mean, they've, they've been, they've been saying this stuff like in their media, they've been saying stuff about, you know, bio labs and stuff like that. In the US. No, but China really hasn't. I mean, China's changing its posture. I mean, the, 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 the upshot, Chinese, the upshot is that China is, but China is now, I mean, Xi Jinping, okay. Xi Jinping, cause this is his statement is changing his posture toward more direct antagonism toward the United States, whereas in the in the past okay. it would more just be like sort of allusions okay, so to the, critiques but, of the U.S. But what is there? But what is the? Is there anything tangible that came out of this? Is there anything? It just sounds like okay, they're they're criticizing they're being harsher to the U.S. as they used to be. Like okay, like what, what, what did they? What did they, what did they travel all that way to Moscow for? There has to be something more. They didn't say anything like they're going to actually do. Um, yeah, I mean, they said a bunch of stuff they're going to do. They're going to hold different, I mean, they're going to have different collaborations and, you know, military partnerships and okay. multi-year blah, blah, blah. economic cooperation. Okay, so I'm looking just, uh, agree to cooperate on the range of economic and business areas. Okay. The use of local currency. Okay. The yuan and ruble would be, uh, they're going to use the yuan and ruble for payment right. between. Okay. Maybe that's something, you know, the currency people, people obsessed with currency can, uh, tell us about that. Expand bilateral trade, can evaporate energy and food, developing rail. Uh, okay. So maybe it's just a bunch of little stuff that adds up to a real economic dependency. Maybe. Um, okay. That's something. Right, they, but right. but just more broadly speaking, and we don't know. I mean, they've they had there were like they had meetings for like four hours one on one. I don't know what they would have done in there. That you know, there's there's probably stuff that we're not privy to yet that was agreed upon that wouldn't be made public. Um, but 
in any event, just the the formalization of so the, the getting, yeah. of the bond or the pact or you know alliance or de facto alliance, whatever you want to call it, I think is itself obviously very significant. Um, just in that, I mean, it wasn't. This was far from preordained, right? right. I mean, and especially for this to have been done at this juncture. <laughs> it's clearly clearly she was, you know, willing to just flout the rest of the quote international community who would who see it as like tantamount to meeting Hitler to meet Putin at this moment. Um you know, on, with on top of that, you had the, you know, international criminal court arrest warrant which you're supposed to preclude anybody from ever even dreaming of meeting Putin ever again because you're like somehow enabling a war criminal if you do it. So, I mean, I think that the, the significance seems pretty self-evident, even if we don't have all the full details of, like, what it entailed in practice. The Russian side that that included joint production of television programs and other cooperations. They're going to make TV uh, together. So, yeah, I mean, what is... what is? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... The alliance is... I mean, compared to... Like, look at something like the EU or NATO, right? Like, that's the stand... That's, like, the level of cooperation in the West, right? And it's interesting that they never get anywhere close to that, right? They, I mean, they could do more, you know, they could do more. Well, because, I mean, they, they say, I mean, part of the, they say philosophically they're opposed to how those Western alliances are constructed. They're like, so they're trying to exemplify a different kind of alliance that doesn't um, depend on this sort of like block antagonism uh-huh. and so there's like a, a different theory underlying the nature of this particular alliance. So they wouldn't just replicate something like NATO or whatever. I mean, um, or the I mean, the EU is just like a different sort of system entirely. But but I mean, whatever it is, I mean, it's clearly got enough going for it that it like it's something now where we can be very confident to the point of like I would say almost certainty that there's this very concrete alliance in the world that hadn't existed a year ago and would have almost seemed pretty far-fetched not very long ago. Okay. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, if they, but if, but but that's, I mean, okay, they can have a philosophical objection towards having a block, but I mean, it's, I mean, so what's your point? You like, you don't think it's any big deal and like people are making too much of it or like, yeah, I, I sort of do. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that that's right because like they can, uh, you know, it's like okay, they have a philosophical disagreement with clo- about, about the idea that, but you need institutions to cooperate well. I mean, the, co- the institutions actually do facilitate the cooperation. If it's just a bunch of like one-off projects, uh, you know, that's like you know, that, that's not going to go anywhere. And so, if people want to make a big deal, oh, Russia and China are coming together and they're going to challenge the West and all that. Like you know, that would be you know, like there's no like if they sign a defense agreement, right? You know, if anyone invades either one of us, you know, or something like that, right? Like that would be a, at least a sign of like serious commitment. This, oh, we'll we'll trade more and we'll you know we'll uh, cooperate on the media. You know, who knows? Maybe calling behind closed doors, or like China is going to support. You know, is going to start selling military aid, sending military aid to Russia. You know, something like that. It would be a big deal. But no, it seems to be that seems to be like everyone makes a big deal of it. Like the people who are like anti, uh, the people who are just like you know the Mike uh, Mike. Uh, uh, whatever his name is, uh, not McFall, McCall, 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 McCall yeah. <laughs> uh, 
you know, McFall too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they want to make a big deal out of it because they want to they want to hype the threat, and then people who are like, "Oh, U.S. foreign policy is a disaster," they want to hype the threat too and say, "Oh, Russia and China are coming together." But it seems to be to be overhyped by both of them. I don't know. I mean, as I look at it, I don't want to overhype or underhype it. I just kind of like want to depict it for what it is. And it seems like there's some significance there to me that's worth you know depicting, you know, without like lapsing into any exaggeration, you know, in either direction. I mean, even just the fact that their positions on Ukraine are have been harmonized, right? I mean, the idea that Russia would have the one of like the leading powers in the world, or the with the you know largest uh, the country with the largest military at this point, and yeah, you know, on pace but, to you know <laughs> outpace the U uh, to exceed the U.S. and GDP and everything, as like in concert with its position on Ukraine. I mean, that's like a very obvious aff- affront to this idea that the U.S. is leading this grand coalition against Russia and it's uniting the international community and. What I mean, that had been the case for a while with China's position, but now it's like formalized into this yeah. more but, but, kind but of concrete. How little, they, how little they're doing. I mean, they're not sending any, any material aid, right? Compare with the U.S. Well, how do you, I mean, we don't know for sure. Okay, you I mean, might be right. I think, if, I, think if they, I think if they were, we would, you know, the intelligence would probably hear, but maybe they don't know. Uh, it seems like it would be one of those things that's hard to hide. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, Lukashenko went to Beijing uh, before, uh, shortly before this, and had his own sort of state meeting. I mean, there's specu- speculation that ha- like if there are some sort of more tangible military supplies being shipped by China to Russia, it might be through some intermediary, like you know Belarus, or through some other channel. I mean, we don't know for sure. I mean, that that the U.S. would necessarily have immediate access to that, or that they would put it out, or Maybe they're trying to downplay it. I mean, there could be a whole set of different calculations going into this. Yeah. I don't know. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Want to talk to? Him? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. talk to. Uh, let's talk to our loser calls. Okay. Uh, Neoliberal. Um. Oh, oh, I mean, loser works too. <laughs> I meant that lovingly. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, nice to hear your guys' chat and think about that, uh, all of these things. Um, I was just also reading that, um, Blinken apparently sort of called, uh, tried to sort of dismiss the, the Russia and China talks as like, uh, a marriage of convenience. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and he calls China, he calls Russia a junior partner. Yeah. Even though they go out of their way in the actual text of their statements and their like dealings with one another, meaning Xi and Putin to like put themselves on equal planes. I mean, there's no real indication, at least based on what you could observe, that like they regard one another as like a junior partner. It's just, so it seems like a. Like, was he trying to like throw shade? I don't know. Yes. Like, you know, with the junior. So, so sad. Like, Blinken is just so embarrassing. Um, but so yeah, I don't really know what to make of it. It kind of looks like Russia and China are like flexing on each other and like doing a media photo op to sort of like uh I don't know, I guess put the US on notice, but uh but I did want to say um that I do believe 100% with all of my heart that Mike Pompeo um ran for governor, you know, for government, um, you know, and wanted to work in the public sector because he truly believes that people in East Turkestan deserve to be free. 
um, from China, and he genuinely believes in human rights. I mean, what, what I'm saying is, this is yeah, obviously yeah. a joke. Like, this guy is obviously not motivated by some principled, um, you know, conviction on human rights. So it kind of just like telegraphs as um, opportunistic, hypocritical, uh, and again, genocide is very, very bad. Wherever it happens, including, you know, I mean, Madeleine Albright, some would say, has committed some sort of you know, I mean, a lot of people died. Um, yeah, and it's Arabia. not just Pompeo, right? I mean, whenever you hear Republicans banging on about China's, quote, human rights record or its human rights violations in Xinjiang or wherever, it really rings almost laughably hollow. And it's like they're just sort of using this obligatory rhetoric rather than saying anything that actually stems from their genuine conviction at all right like this is saying like you know i I'm, i mean i i have I'm, I'm a nobody person and i don't know what the fuck but like i think it's just a lot of shit is happening uh you know all around the world and it's always really selective when it comes to our foreign policy i was talking to someone earlier about like um like years ago i wrote like my thesis on imperialism through gay rights and it was a long time, <laughs> but like it was basically talking about how the U.S. was obsessed for a while talking about how like about like gay people in Russia. We need to like, you know, they're they're oppressed. Um, they we need to they, they deserve liberation. And there was even an article in the New York Times in the nineties, literally saying like if we just if they what they're yearning for in Russia, gay people in Russia, is to have a Castro Street like San Francisco. And <laughs> but wasn't and there a whole controversy around that? During the Sochi Olympics, where there were like objections being registered about some new, you know, ostensibly anti-LGBT law that Russia had just introduced around that time, and, and they're like, and they're very real laws. But I just I think also Saudi Arabia is very like you know is very aggressively targeting the the LGBT community, and we don't really seem to have uh, consistent principles when it comes to that. So for gay people like me, if you're weaponizing my rights and my struggle as an excuse to like invade other countries or liberate people abroad. I mean, that's not like, so there's always a focus on gay people and like, yeah, the Sochi Olympics or like the human rights violations in Russia or, or Uganda or Chechnya, but it's never like, what about Qatar? You know, what about Egypt? Do we talk about Egypt? Like, so I just, so I don't know if that relates exactly to the China Xinjiang um, human rights violations, which I do believe might very well happen i think the question is is are people like mike pompeo using it cynically well forget about mike pompeo i mean there's uh, there's some recent interesting examples along these lines as well i don't know if you followed anything that's been going on recently with the solomon islands which is not the most <laughs> um household name of a, na a country for most people is it by australia uh, but, kind of like those islands? yeah yeah it, it's in it's it's in the, in the sort of south pacific in the rough vicinity of australia but there was this jostling recently between the u.s and china as to who was going to like be able to establish some sort of new basing on the on the island of course that's what the united states wanted to do um but what happened was and this is an oversimplification, but the U.S. registered a, a complaint about the Solomon Islands not having some, you know, the proper LGBT policy. And then not long after, this was like in the, uh, this was like last year, maybe last spring, summer, uh, 
not long after the Solomon Islands essentially kind of fell into the or, uh, orbit instead of, of China, meaning it sort of picked a side, so to say. Again, oversimplification, but the U.S. still sort of uses that as a cudgel, even at times when it seems to maybe disadvantage its own interests from like a real politique perspective. Like if there were actual like realists in power, or if there was a more like if they're like if like Henry Kissinger was setting the foreign policy agenda, I doubt that they would have made a point to register some sort of grievance with the treatment of LGBT in the Solomon Islands if they thought that there was any possibility that that could then lead to the U.S. like relinquishing its claim or having to relinquish any claim to having some sort of military jurisdiction there and it falls into the orbit of China. I, I think Kissinger probably would have had different priorities. So it worked but, against them, basically. Yeah. Wow. Mm, so it's not even smart. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are, I he's telling you that you're wrong, that Mike Pompeo did go into politics to uh, free the people of East Turkmenistan, and they do actually care about gay rights. I'm not following that. So, was that was that an ironic statement, or was that no? It's, it's, you're you're saying that the, it's legitimate, right? The LGBT stuff is like legit, legitimately something that they believe in and care about, which I think is it's true. Oh, I, I don't think Pompeo cares about it. I think the people in the Biden administration yeah. care about and it. And well, Pompeo peeled back a little bit of the LGBT stuff. They were they, he told them not to, you know, they did not to wave. They were all the State Department were waving like pride flags, the like are the uh, embassies. And Pompeo actually told them not to. And this was like a big thing. Like there were news stories about this. Like Pompeo says, you know, don't, uh, you know, stop pushing gay rights so much. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think when like the the like messianic liberals who are in charge now, when they sort of you know, sermonize about human rights and everything else that's kind of like within the ballywick of the State Department. They probably do like genuinely believe it on some level. Whereas like with a Pompeo or whatever, it's just kind of a but to his credit, uh, uh, you know, a, a pose. Uh, gay stuff, he doesn't even pretend to care about. To his credit, right? About. He just tends to care about like human rights as like a yeah. legal concept or like a philosophical yeah. concept, which yeah. I doubt he actually buys. Yeah, maybe he does. Maybe I don't know who the other person is. I mean, who? Yeah. What is in Mike Pompeo's heart? You know, not I. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I know I could <laughs> zoom for uh, a little bit. Um, but but the last thing I was gonna um, say is um, I, when when Richard was talking, it kind he kind of persuaded me a little bit that I remembered that they talked for a while about Russia and China have creating their own payment system. And that was kind of scary for in the news media for a while. And it was in the news for six months and it sort of went away. So I don't know. So I guess I do kind of, uh, sort of maybe, maybe it's the nonsensical optimist in me that just kind of doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of the. I think he dropped out. Yeah, you kind of dropped out right at the end there, neoliberal. Oh, I think we. we oh, sorry. yeah, um, you're back. You're back. Just saying, uh, thank you guys for having this conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, neoliberal. Neoliberal tears. Oh, I got. That oh, neoliberal. <laughs> neoliberal. Yeah, we no, should. We should. We should make a point to look at their full username so we can get the joke. <laughs> like, oh, this guy doesn't seem to have neoliberal. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he does.
Peter, that's your full name, I think, as far as. Yeah, like Elaine, like uh, Kramer. Right. Cher? <laughs> yeah, second loser coming up. Basically. Don't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Just want to add some uh, content to, to this fantastic show. So I posted two links to, uh, to Writer's News uh, two years ago uh, when Trump asked his uh, commerce department to ban TikTok. Uh, there's two cases, one by the TikTok users in Pennsylvania, one by the ByteDance. They sued the Commerce Department and the federal court. Both judges, one by Obama, one appointed by Obama, one by Trump, mm -hmm. sided with TikTok, saying the Commerce Department cannot do that. Right. So today, even if the Congress make a law banning TikTok, First of all, legally, I think they will be challenged under the similar grounds uh, from the legal perspective. I think they can go all the way to U.S. Supreme Court and probably even the World Trade Organization. I think WTO, unlike ICC, International Criminal Court, I think WTO is, uh, is, uh, is applicable to the U.S. and China and all that. So that's the legal part. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, obviously they're going to be crafting this new legislation or whatever legislation ends up being enacted with the awareness of the rulings that came down in those two cases in 2020, which weren't, you know, totally comprehensive in just ruling on the principle of whether the government has the ability to ban this particular app. I mean, if you if you read the, the those decisions, they're fairly complex and you know the relevant issue that's being adjudicated is like they're like slivers of various issues rather than like an overall sort of rendering of a judgment on the propriety or the constitutionality of banning tiktok so like i mean there's a way to kind of formulate legislation potentially now that sort of bypasses whatever um restrictions flow from those two rulings uh, it's so yeah i mean obviously it will be challenged i'm sure if it actually yeah, does get enacted but but it's not not mm -hmm. obvious that it would like get struck down but the key is this the two years uh, the excuse two years ago is the same excuse today it's called the national security so the fact that courts strike it down it seems to me the court has allowed our national security being breached by the TikTok for over two years yeah. now so that is a very, very, you know. They uh, put us all at risk experience. for two years just because they didn't like Trump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that's a legal piece. The second piece is the technically speaking. I don't know how techy you guys are, tech savvy. That Richard's you know? very tech savvy. Okay, so you know that about jail a jailbreak and the uh, uh, and the uh, in Android is called a rooted phone, right? So in other words, if the government say you cannot drink alcohol tomorrow. Are you going to find some way to get some, you know, prohibited alcohol for yourself if you are, you know, alcoholic? So we all know TikTok extreme, extremely addictive, right? So if that's the case, I mean, people will offer up the service how to load your phone with the TikTok, you know, <laughs> even yeah, in the government. Right, you always oh Chinese. I've always been too scared to do a jailbreak on any of my phones because I feel like I'm going to screw something up or get in trouble or whatever. 
Well, this, yeah, I mean, it's all, no it's all teen, girl, I mean, teen girls love TikTok. I mean, they're not the most yeah group out there. Yeah, the te- no, no, actually, it's, it's actually this is the teenager I'm going to talk about. I'm surprised no parents come to the Congress Capitol and say, if you ban TikTok, my teen teenagers will commit suicide. I'm, I'm going to hold you accountable if they because this is so addictive. You cannot do that. And the worst is this: pedophiles will be very happy. They're going to offer some jailbreak service. To the teenager, in exchange of sexual favors. Right? Well, and another thing is there are a lot of people who use TikTok who have become massively influential and are going to be deprived of income of their exactly. livelihood by the exactly. government in just like the blink of an eye if they all of a sudden pass a law one day and just exactly. prohibit its use. I mean, the TikTok actually revitalized the book publishing industry, believe it or not, because. Like TikTok phenomenon, uh, phenomena were like leading to like gigantic bestsellers from formerly obscure authors in like you know um, young adult literature genres and whatever. I mean, there's there have been articles. I, I read an article in the New York Times maybe a few weeks ago about how like one of the, the the woman who has sold the who sold the most books in the country in 2022. Been by a large margin was I mean you wouldn't even know the name probably I hadn't heard of her name and I can't even recall it because it's just like a not <laughs> a memorable enough name but she became the country's best selling author by leaps and bounds because of some whatever magic formula that you know uh, ended up boosting her to this you know astronomical level through TikTok in some fashion so all of a sudden the government's just now going to terminate those you know profit opportunities for a huge sort of you know sector of the economy pretty much exactly oh by the way i'm chinese so i think i can spoke about the chinese app and chinese company because hold on hold on on. are you infiltrating this calling on behalf of the ccp exactly i'm a member of ccp i've been i've been doing a lot of uh spying for the i feel like my national security is at risk as we speak exactly i'm literally committing crime Right now, right <laughs> in front of. So I think we, the Americans, you know, really are creative when government tells us not to do something, right? When right. the government say, you know, don't run away, slaves stay. Well, the slaves do run away, right? The, the, uh, the, the don't don't buy alcohol. <laughs> well, we have mops, right? I think that the, the slave analogy might be a bit of a stretch, but I know oh, what you okay. mean. Well, the, uh, alcohol is a good one, right? So. Uh, and, uh, you know, how, how that works, you know, it's the Congress who passed the law. See, I'm a little skeptical because if they do, like, if TikTok gets removed from all the app stores and you can't access it on an iPhone anymore. You can silo then, it. You well, silo. I mean, there might be a small minority of people who are still going to access it, but the whole sort of appeal of TikTok or the whole reason why it's blown up in the way it has is because it's like, has this mass appeal, uh, uh, market appeal or has this... It's like easy for everybody to just get without having to do anything special on their phone. No, I'm trying to say, technically speaking, you cannot ban because you can do VPN, right? Because of the Chinese government. But most say, oh, people don't know how to get a VPN on their iPhone. Oh, there's so many people who knows VPN. There's so many VPN for uh, free and uh, pay service on VPN. You can pretend to be you know, you are from Czechoslovakia because uh, like there's a lot of paywalls by these mainstream media, right? I don't pay. A penny for mainstream media because they're a piece of shit. But if I want to read the articles, they, they put a paywall. I just use a VPN, right? Pretending I'm from Czechoslovakia. 
Then I'm all set. Yeah, but, but like as Richard mentioned earlier, like your your average 15 year old girl is not going to probably have the technological know how to figure out how to get a VPN on their phone, which is how they all use TikTok. And so, if the government does actually prohibit uh, TikTok, I think it's actually going to have a major effect and, yeah. and more or less just stamp out TikTok in the U.S. When I was well, affiliated with the university, they wanted us to use VPN to get access to like academic articles from, uh, uh, from, uh, uh, you know, from uh, away from campus. And it was so inconvenient, even though this was legal and encouraged, it was so inconvenient that I just found another way to get the article. So uh, most people are not going to uh, figure out how to do this. I mean, I have a VPN. I think it's going to go away. Yeah, I mean, I have a VPN that I use at times on my computer for various stuff but like you know i don't think i'm representative of the median tiktok user who's you know gonna probably now just not be able to use tiktok yeah 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 but uh, another uh, an interesting point you made before peter that or a point that it sort of spurred me to think about is that you know if you compare why is it that the circumstances were such that the attempt by Trump in 2020 to ban TikTok through executive order was struck down versus now where there's this, you know, gigantic coalescence of a consensus, bipartisan, um, a bipartisan consensus to ban it. You know, yeah, of course, there's a legal rationale that led to that decisions, those decisions in 2020. But really, I think the, the major shift is a political one, because in 2020, there was going to be widespread skepticism or even hostility to whatever Trump designated as a national security threat, where you were going to, you were going to have the media very antagonistic to Trump already, and therefore you know going to be extra, mm-hmm. you know, uh, disinclined to just buy into whatever he's saying is this national security threat. Well, one but, of but the, whereas, uh, whereas now it's just this you know cross cutting come consensus that doesn't involve Trump as sort of this this incendiary variable. Yes, it's a, it, there's some truth in that because uh, back then the National Security Division director by the name of uh, John Dimmers, he went to the Capitol Hill saying, we need your help to show up this uh, 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 defense or, uh, you know, or from the this China threat thing. But he did not receive well in the Capitol Hill, meaning that they didn't do anything. Therefore, Trump has to use this uh, executive order. I think in this case, he asked the Commerce Department to ban, you know, this app from the uh, iPhone. Uh, it's called the iPhone. Is, the, is it called the iPhone Store? Or, or, app and, Store, yeah. yeah the uh, Apple, uh, Apple App Store, I think. Yeah, Apple App Store and all that. So that's the two lawsuits come up. Nowadays, you, you will say, oh, now there's a bipartisan support, of course, just like the Ukrainians. Uh, the, right. the, the, the money and the weapons for Ukrainian. These are all bipartisan support. There's no difference. These are the, all the deep state shit because they <laughs> really, right? You know, we all know that. And he started with uh, this uh, guy, Atresta, Atreston Harris. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, saying TikTok is the digital fentanyl on 60 right. minutes. You know, the mainstream, they all know how to do this uh, manufactured consent, you know. So the, but I, TikTok is a good one because uh, so many teenagers, like like you said, Michael, the uh, livelihood is on that. You take it away, if they commit suicide, it's on you. You know, they will. They, you are going to have martyrs growing up. But however, yeah. I do believe the teenagers they will they will learn very fast. They will be they will be offered with help, just like abortion services that uh, <laughs> someone will offer those uh, helps and they say, yeah, you can do this and you get your TikTok. 
just yep. you know you know and uh, it's not that hard because uh, in the communist country like china people can use vpn to visit any western sites then we americans can be just as creative right yep. all right well uh thanks peter thank you yeah uh not 100 percent sure as to the applicability of the slavery or abortion metaphors there but um maybe peter's onto something who's to say Andrew. Certainly not me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to bring up, a, first of all, if Richard's still there, I would like to ask you, um, do you believe that DeSantis's statements were more significant in terms of signaling what he's going to do in the future compared to these meetings by Russia and China and their their statements and well, we had a whole discussion there. about that. Just you, you, you were following along last right. week when we had that whole DeSantis discussion. Yeah, and I was understanding your argument about what it portends for his potential positions as a president. And I guess I just see the China and Putin and Russia thing is similar in terms of the countries putting their foot down, kind of for the. First, I mean, I haven't heard. And DeSantis made a new statement um, yesterday, so. I don't. Yeah. Well, okay. I didn't. It's not even. He walked back. Me. He walked it back a little bit. But you're saying okay. that, they, like, because DeSantis made it harder for himself to go back. That China and Russia. But the thing is, they do this. They do. They didn't say new. Like they do. They do this stuff all the time. They said they were best friends. You know, they said friendship without limits. You know, they 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 call each other friend. They they talk about how nice. You know, how much they love each other. So what about know, their well, vision what, for the world, though? Like, because that's about well, what each vision? Other. It has no, it has no interference. Okay. If they had, if they formed an organization or they formed like a something, like they have this, you know, thing of China and Russia, and it's not like other countries are like, you know, breaking down the doors to, you know, to get in. It's not like Africa's like, oh, we got to be in on whatever China and Russia. Are doing. Well, I mean, they kind of are at at the, at this very summit or whatever you want to, whatever the gathering was called and that was held in Moscow this week, there was like this ancillary meeting that was held where there were, chi there were African um, delegations who had traveled there to, you know, meet look, with look, Putin a, and Xi. I guess, I guess the point is a, a and uh, BRICS a is expanding. I mean, Argentina, a, a Saudi Arabia is joining works, it. A coalition that works together and coordinates like the West does is going to, is going to start, you first start off with the fact that the U S and Europe, you know, together and Japan and, you know, are, are the, basically the one block is much wealthier than even China and, you know, Russia put together. But that, so start with that. And then also the fact that these countries are uh, uh, coordinating like a, a coalition that's more powerful than the other coalition and also actually coordinating while the other one is not really coordinating, you say, because they have a philosophical objection to it or whatever. Um, you know, like look at how much support Ukraine gets from the West versus how, you know, what Russia gets from China. It, it doesn't, it's not comparable. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I think that this kind of China and Russia alliance, that's why I think it's very overrated. Well, I just found it interesting that it sounded to me like uh, for the first time in my life, China and Russia kind of making demands of the West that I, very specific public demands, like about investigating the Nord Stream pipeline bombing they do this all the time. They they said investigate okay. China. I mean, I'm sure they said investigate the U.S. role in COVID. I'm sure there was something about they say investigate the bio lab thing. I mean, they, I I promise you they've said investigate the U.S. for stuff before. Yeah, I guess in a kind of cursory way, but this seemed to be. I don't know. It, I guess it did seem more significant to me. 
in that it was a detailed point. But I, you know, but I guess my impression of it was that what was significant was not any sort of individual joint demand they might have made or any you know specific component of like the joint statement or you know, what they might have said to one another verbally. But it was just the wider, yes, symbolic significance because for she to go to Moscow for the first time he's exited the country since COVID, um, or or I think you know one of the first times that he's exited the country since COVID, he chooses to go to Moscow. He chooses to fly in the face of kind of Western uh, opprobrium by clearly choosing to symbolically display to the world that he is in allegiance with Russia to some degree, notwithstanding what's going on in Ukraine. That that alone is of enough import, I would think, that it has a clear enough it has, and has clear enough sort of significance of even again, if it's just on a symbolic level, that I don't know, it's a it, it formalizes what happened when they made that statement right ahead of the invasion about the partnership with no limits. It's like a, you know, a culmination of that sort of pact that they had initially forged then and shows the durability of it because clearly China didn't waver even in the face of the pressures that have been, you know, I mean, put on like put, put on them limits. related to the Ukraine thing. The limits are it doesn't provide. I just think it. You said maybe they are providing weapons. I mean, it would be noticeable on the battlefield. I mean, people are still saying they're reporting that you know they're not, they're not reporting that uh, you know they do have drones coming from China. But like, and the, you know, I've heard had, of. They had, they had well, I mean, they did they did pledge to to uh, buy even more oil. I mean, they are they're basically funding the Russian state to a large extent. Because it's cut off from any sort of Western revenues now, um, so that's pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, I mean, well, what's the long term? I mean, upshot here is: are they gonna? Are they gonna? Uh, you know, are they gonna be a, a block that's going to? Um, you know, is if if China if China goes to war with Taiwan, uh, what's Russia gonna? You know, what's Russia gonna do? I guess is the question. Does it? Does it make it? Does it make uh, Russia? Does it make China more likely to do it, or China more likely to think that it's going to get something from Russia? Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it, ha- it has that changed based on this uh, conference. Um, I don't know. I well, China explicitly China. endorses. Endor- I mean, Russia explicitly endorses China's claims on Taiwan now, and uh, they, they had done that, that. They had done that in the initial statement here, in February twenty one, but they reinforced me, it. I mean, that- and that reminds me. I mean, you want to see how much how limited the partnership is. I mean, who recognized the Russian annexations of uh, Ukraine? Uh, North Korea did. China did not. I mean, that's. I mean, North Korea. I think even Belarus did. I mean, even North Korea is the only country. But I mean, that's the least China can do if it had a real. I mean, partnership if we wanted to support the uh, Russian position on the war. I I do see what you're saying, Richard, and that there's nothing novel that comes out of this meeting, and but you know. And maybe there's more of it made than there should be, but it does seem to me to be at least a statement to the West about continued. For me, if you, if I was to take their perspective as a genuine good faith perspective, I would think that they want to be in some kind of organization that's 
secures what they view as their own nation's sovereignty somehow without sacrificing it to other member nations of that organization where, I don't know, I think a lot of people would say with Germany having its own pipeline blown up by the United States or some other NATO ally, most likely, they have given up their sovereignty. And their their whole conference was that there will be no superior peer or uh, it, it will be peers. We're not going to have a superior and an inferior. It's going to be a relationship of peers, which I think that was a jab in the eye to NATO, which is basically saying, look, you just, you're, a, you're a mafia organization, more or less, that's getting run by Big Joe. And he's blowing up your infrastructure and you can't do anything about it because you're not peers. Also, but, I mean, people talk about multipolarity and sometimes it gets a, li- a little bit tedious because it's like almost a cliche at times. But if we're going to, if we just grant that the, this is an actual alliance of sorts, right? So China and Russia can be understood as now form, uh, forming some sort of unified bloc or what have you. Then it seems to me historically significant because it's confirmation that, you know, pretty much for the first time, at least since the end of the Cold War, the United States actually has a genuine genuinely formidable sort of rival geopolitical formation to contend that's with. That's what I'm taking out of this. It's That's exactly what I'm taking out of But maybe that's too like, much. The U- U.S. Su- US uh, supremacy cannot just be assumed now in relation to these rival states. Is, am I wrong, uh, Richard? Say that, say that again. I mean, isn't it significant that now for the first time, at least since, you know, the, the, the end of the Cold War, the U.S. cannot just be presumed to have supremacy geopolitically over these... Uh, the U.S. cannot be assumed to have any kind of unipolar supremacy any longer because it has a rival bloc now that is formidable enough that it could possibly even surpass the U.S. in its kind of collective I I think, power. I think the U.S. is a stronger position. I mean, it was five years ago. So five, six years ago, I think it was poss- It was more, I think, the most of the countries of the region, like Japan and uh, Japan particularly, and I think India and some of the Southeast Asian countries like the Philippines, uh, they were a little bit more in between China and the U.S., um, they've tilted heavily towards the U.S. recently. Japan has become, you know, like not doing the pacifist thing anymore, getting more hawkish. Uh, Vietnam has become very anti-China, has had struggle issues. The U.S. Philippines was saying it was basically under Duarte, was basically leaning towards China. And, you know, they were basically kicking the U.S. out. And now the Philippines is back with the U.S.-India, uh, seems to, you know, not have, be having the best relationship with China. So you have the Quad. Uh, so the U.S., I think, is, is uh, there's more of a commitment to defend Taiwan. So I think the U.S. is in a stronger position in East Asia. I think the U.S. is in a stronger position in, in Europe. I mean, we know now NATO's not going anywhere. There's more commitment to it. Um, you know, we, we you know, this is just, a, I think, self-evident from the war. So, no. I, 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 I mean, the U.S. still might have the edge, but now it has, like, as formidable of a rival block that it's had since 1990. Um, the most formidable block it's had since the night. I think that you directly after the Iraq War. I think that was probably the U.S. was that sort of its, uh, you know, because China hadn't China hadn't really grown yet. So okay, uh, but like the fact that like you know France and Germany were like so hostile, 
uh, to what the U.S. was doing. Like, and the third world was like more hostile, and so that, like that could have been something. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's just natural. It's just natural because China wasn't rich yet, right? So China was a lot poorer right. 20 years ago. So of course it couldn't do anything. And Russia um, hadn't. I mean, and Russia's now ha- has a much larger military as well. I mean, in, in the early 2000s, yeah. Russia was nowhere yeah. near as formidable yeah. as it is today. Uh, that's true. I mean, some of it is just natural consequence of China getting wealthier. But I mean, I still I think compared to five years ago, like I, I thought it was very popular. I wrote a, I wrote a, a paper on this uh, for defense. Party, no, but, but, but here's my question. Is this not the most formidable geopolitical rival since that the U.S. would have had to have sure. contend with since 1990? Sure, because China is much, you know, China's the by far the biggest country that's, you know, emerged. Right, since and now China's like explicitly in conjunction with Russia arrayed against the United States, whereas it had occupied a more ambiguous position in the, in the recent Yeah, battle. I think right. they're I think taking, yes, they're announcing their place on the stage. They basically walked on the stage and said, here we are. I think yeah. that's what it was. So, now, I agree that it's not novel, necessarily, in other ways, Richard. I think it is novel, it actually. <laughs> well, that is, that is, but the specific points of whatever trade or whatever, I agree, that's... But it, it, but the trend, I mean, yeah, you're right, since 1990, but the trend of, like, what I thought the world would be like five years ago. I thought China would just dominate East Asia, and, like, the other countries would just learn to live with it. Uh, what happened was China, you know, in part, shot itself in the foot with its uh, economic slowdown, the zero COVID. I mean, it lost, like, you know, two, three years. Uh, because of this, it doesn't seem to be even prioritizing economic growth that much anymore. Their birth rate plummeted. I mean, it just like collapsed, um, and you know, people didn't know that would happen. Uh, and then the, the other countries, you know, just well, I mean, the U.S. keeps. I mean, th- these security studies people in the U.S. kind of uh, think tank apparatus and whatnot, they're in like a constant panic about the <laughs> military buildup of China. They're saying that like Russia is now supplying China with like nuclear fissured materials and the even like Russia's nuclear arsenal no, no, now I'm is like expanding you, rapidly. So of what I thought, what I thought we would be like, you're right that China is growing and China was going to grow. Everyone knew that. Right. And the question is, you know, what's the sort of the trajectory? You're right. I mean, the point you want to make is correct. Um, and the, but the question is, like, what's the trajectory of like, is China, you know, China is China in a better position than it was five years ago? I, I don't think so. I think the headwinds are against it now. Better position than 15 years ago? Sure. It's maybe just much wealthier, much bigger, unquestionably. Yeah, I, mean, I have no I have no um, idea who the, has the headwinds, because if it uh, if there is like a global conflagration, then like, I think everybody's screwed. But yeah, I would say uh, if I could just bring up one granular point before I go about the Ukraine war right now, because there's a myth yeah. that's been long going on about this Bakhmut battle and how this t- town is not strategically significant. Do you do you believe that, Richard? Because um, I've heard that by a lot of people. Well, what I've Bakhmut heard is that is not significant. What I've heard is that if 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 uh, Ukraine didn't find Bakhmut, they would just move on. The Russians would move on to the next city. Uh, so you might as well fight for. Uh, Bakhmut. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, Russia did get pushed back from a Volodar, whoever, however you say that city's name. Mm-hmm. People were saying that was more legit. Like, I don't think people are lying about which city is strategic because they were. It looked like Russians were going to capture that other. City. So wait, but and there's people. people... Hmm? I, I understand that, but this claim that's going. I'm sorry. This claim that's going around is that Bakhmut itself is not strategically significant if it were captured. Yeah, I and... have no. I have no uh, reason to think that's not true. Well, okay, I can give you one because General Zeluzhny himself in the Wall Street Journal said that the battle of the defense of Bakhmut was key to the entire defense of the line, the entire front line. I mean, 
So Zelensky, when he addressed Congress in December, said it was akin to the Battle of Saratoga, didn't he? Yeah. Well, what did he give he a reason? What's the reason? He, there, he, was, is it symbolic? I, or is it, did I, they say there's a reason? No, I believe that the reason is that if that collapses, that they're going to be capturing a major road network. I don't know exactly what Jalushni said, if that was the end of his statement. You need to read the Wall Street Journal article. I can put the link, yeah, put the title, in the chat. Um, hold on, just give me one second. Ukraine's leadership doubles down on Bakhmut defense as Russia gets closer. That's okay. the title of the article, and you can find the Zelensky quote in there in its full context. But the uh, the point I'm making is that if there's clear significance to it in the terms of there are parts of the line to the north and parts of the line to the south that can be flanked and attacked once Bakhmut falls because it's a major road network that leads to Seversk and then also other places to the south that are not maybe as significant. But the point is that it's not just, you know, some random town or city. And you're right that they would just go fight somewhere else if Ukraine moved out. I'm not denying that or that Russia's losing in other places or whatever that yeah. may be. I just this there's certain myths that go around that I then see quotes that completely contradict it from people that are directly involved. And then I suppose most of the time I'm supposed to believe that they're just lying or it's some kind of psyop or it's, you know, I'm reading the context wrong. Whereas these blanket statements that there's no strategic significance to a city that sits on a major road network is so just. So I'm reading, I'm reading the article and then it says, uh, uh, the commander of the forces, General Valery Zaluzny, this week described the defender Bechmoud as key to the stability of the defense front. Mark Milley, blah, blah, blah. Signal support for Ukraine. Wave after wave of Russian soldiers are thrown into the chaos of war, absent any kind of coordination, blah, blah, blah. Both sides are. So it's, uh, Bakhmut, the generals say, is a key element in their effort to weaken Russia's army ahead of a crucial Ukrainian offensive using fresh. Okay, so actually, this doesn't sound like they're saying Bakhmut's important. It's just the place they happen to be fighting to weaken the Russia. I mean, that's the that's the argument that you know that's the standard argument uh, that it's about. It's about you know just inflicting casualties and wearing the Russians down. You know, one thing one thing I heard was that there was consternation among some of the Ukrainian forces about the, the strategy around Bakhmut, in part because Ukraine was attriting some of its most sort of seasoned fighters, or it was losing like high-value fighters in the battle, whereas Russia was mainly losing like these Wagner conscripts who are lesser value. So Russia was actually getting the better of the deal in that, you know, the, the trade-off was these, you know, prisoners and whatever for the actual experienced Ukraine fighters who are now are like not available for some future counteroffensive potentially. Yeah, I just think that if you look at a map, you can tell the significance of Bakhmut in terms of if it were captured, what that could lead to in the same way that if you were to say Solidar is not strategically significant and then within a few weeks, where, where did they come out of Solidar, they came from Solidar to the north of Bakhmut, and that was part of the encirclement that is, it is now finding itself in. So there's there's all kinds of things that you can just verify for yourself that I think, you know, there's a lot of blanket concrete statements out there about things that are just taken on faith 
and I don't understand. What's it. the bigger point, though? I mean, like, worth. what what would be what's the realization that would be had if we could like uh, agree on the strategic import of, of Bakhmut? Like, what 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 revelation would that bring? It wouldn't not even being be understood. to me about the, the the pace of the war or anything like that. It's just the fact of the incoherence of people's logic in a time of war when there are things you can look at yourself or that are being verified by sources inside the military that <laughs> are fighting the war. Well, I agree with that. I don't remember any setback that Ukraine has ever has suffered ever being called strategically significant. <laughs> right. Anytime, anytime Ukraine has ever made a gain, it's been enormously strategically significant. Anytime they've ever had a setback, it's been, you know, inconsequential. And then, you know, the, the, uh, inverse of that for for russia well so it's, it's, it's all narrative as usual it just doesn't seem to be logical to me in, no. in a sense it's not that it matters specifically to understanding the war but uh anyway thank yep. you for your time all right you? thanks andrew as always uh max is up max are you there hey um, hey yeah i just was reading uh here on the gray zone, it says that um, in terms of the Uyghur uh, population de- decrease, it was only 5% from 2017 to 2018 uh, as a result of equal enforcement of family planning policy. Right. But I've read this, I think. Yeah. So it wasn't as significant. Because it's not as like the Uyghurs were, tar- were the only Wait, demographic the targeted say? for family planning policy, right? What yeah, exactly. What percentage yes. did they say? Five percent. There was a five percent drop. Okay, let me uh, let me yeah. see here. Xinjiang and birth. So I'm just what, I've, what I've heard from some people is that like some Han people apparently feel as if even Uyghurs get preferential treatment in some. Yeah, they do. I, I mean, they get affirmative action. Yeah, yeah, I because mean, there, there were the, the Han had more had tighter restrictions on the number of offspring they could have compared no, I mean, to Uyghurs true. at one point. That's true, right? It's like if they started for, I mean, it's still that's like a new kind of repression for them. I mean, the fact that okay, they like they repress these people, and now they're also repressing these people too. I mean, it is a it is a new thing. But anyway, the charts from I mean, the source for this one is Voice of America, so take that for what it's worth. But they show the numbers, and it's it looks <laughs> like a fifty drop it doesn't look like a five percent drop in like one or two years okay well i guess there was that scandal with gray zone and chat gpt i don't know how <laughs> significant that was but if you that. look at the long-term demographic trajectories other than the blip from like 2017 to 2018 the percentage of um uyghur in in that region yeah, has so, increased steadily, right? Right. So it's not, like been, it's not like they've been the, genocided. <laughs> yeah, no, but that people care about the percentage. I mean, the people care about the what happened starting in 2017, just because it was growing before that. I mean, if sure. they if they mm-hmm. stop letting them have kids after that, that's still something to complain about. Yeah, like in terms of that, what do you think about these geopolitical analysts like Peter, was his name Zihan or something, who's saying china will collapse in 10 years and oh there seems that. to be this whole industry around china's collapse and you know all these yeah 
That stuff's been around for 30 years. I mean, countries yeah. don't usually collapse. I think China's extremely politically stable. I mean, the zero COVID stuff, there was protests against it. But you, when you consider that they basically locked people in their homes for, you know, three years, and they just finally got, like, some protests that even aren't, like, as big as the Iranian protests or some other protests. I mean, they seem to have, the Chinese government seems to have an extremely high level of social control. I'm not optimistic about the future of China. I think that they're making a lot of Thanks, but I don't, there's not going to be a collapse. I, I think that's, I think people, I mean, uh, Gordon Chang is still gets on Fox News and they still promote his book. You know, author of The Coming Collapse of China, they don't tell you he wrote it in 2000. Yeah. Um, oh, and, well. And he's keep, you know, he says he, the same thing every like six months. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, he does Literally. say every, he says COVID, he says, you know, he said Omicron was going to lead to the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. Gordon Chang. It's Gord, yeah, Gordon Chang, right? That's who it's yeah, Gordon what did Chang. I say? I think it was a Peter. Or so. Maybe I misheard. But yeah, Gordon Chang. I mean, look up. Yeah, I mean, Peter people, have must, have, people must have collected, like, the greatest hits of Gordon Chang saying the, yeah. the imminent have, collapse have, of some... China is upon us. And it's like he's saying the same thing in 2003 and then 5 and then 9 and then 12. Yeah, I, you know. I have tweets like this. Let me see if I can find my tweets. Uh, There's a lot of YouTubers like this now, too. Like, it's it's a big thing. Um, and also, the one connection I was interested in, like, obviously, Biden is in uh, Ottawa right now, uh, dining it up with Trudeau. Um, and we just had an MP who, you know, was crying on the parliament floor, resigning from the Liberal yeah, Party. Yeah, I read about this. Yeah, the allegations. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, does it seem like it has merit? Because, I mean, it's, you can never... I mean, my baseline reaction to any of this sort of stuff is going to be just skepticism and even leaning toward just outright doubt because, like, there's very little specificity as to what is even being alleged as to, like... The infiltration that supposedly happened, right? So this yeah. MP is being accused of having, you know, done the bidding of like the Chinese embassy because he asked for, like, he recommended that these two people in custody in China, these two Canadians in custody in China, not be released right away for some, for whatever reason. To I think it was to do with the, um, you know, election in two thousand twenty-one or twenty. Is that right? Yeah, I don't. Know, but 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 like these. Little sort of snippets of allegations get kind of cast as cast in the most grandiose terms, like it's terms like it's uh, infiltration or it's interference. I mean, it's a, it's an offshoot of what was done with with Russia post two thousand sixteen in the U.S. Um, it's not the uh, an exact mirror image, but there's a, a lot of the same sort of like exaggerative tendencies um, or kind of like you know, uh, lack of adherence to any kind of real factual standards that is, you know, very much sort of a successor to that Russiagate stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, now our, I guess, conservatives, I, it's interesting you were talking about, they're always referring it to as like the CCP. Now they started referring to it here as Beijing or Peking. I don't know if... They're trying to put oh, they're odds. going with Peking, so they're not even, they're like making a sort of, they're rejecting the post-colonial uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, legitimacy of China or something. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but anyway, the guy who, you know, released those allegations, he wrote a book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's uh, 
called Willful Blindness, and it's like the subtitle is how a network of narco tycoons have infiltrated the West. And um, he has like a bunch of sources which seem to be sort of disgruntled former like RCMP uh, people. And um, it's just, it's kind of interesting to see that that's where it all is springing from. It's like this one guy. uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, just, just think about what's happening though, just from like a broader perspective, right? It just so happens that simultaneously China's engulfed in this Russia, uh, sorry, in this uh, China, sorry, Canada is engulfed in this China frenzy mm-hmm. at the same time as there's like a China frenzy of, of comparable magnitude engulfing the U.S. <laughs> with the TikTok stuff and with you know, Taiwan and how it's opening up this new front in a potential global confrontation and G and Putin and everything. It's, um, yeah, it does, it does seem like a tipping point's been reached. Uh, and I, I've mentioned this on the show with Carl, uh, uh, Richard in maybe a couple weeks ago, but I do feel like that from early February onward, like beginning with the spy balloon incident, there ha- really has been a rapid acceleration that um, almost seems like the crossing the point of no return um and i think that does did seem to have been sort of consummated by the putin she meeting whatever richard's uh <laughs> dismissal of it as being overblown um i actually don't think it is overblown really um it does seem like a potential sort of like civilizational kind of shift and just the, the the world order doesn't mean there's going to be like a hardcore sort of revamping of like day-to-day life for most people but you know in terms of how just countries situate themselves and whatnot i mean and if and if it is the case that like as what michael mccall said at the beginning if you were here that you know we're on the precipice of some sort of world war three type scenario then like you know all bets are off i mean who's to even say what any kind of future trajectory would be for any country in that circumstance. And it, 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 unfortunately, I mean, I think I almost feel weird saying this in a sort of casual tone, but I, it, it does seem to be like a relatively plausible eventuality at this point. I mean, because it seems like there are, especially in the U.S., who are like, you know, making it into a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're like, you know, almost trying to trigger, maybe they're, claiming to be attempting to deter, you know, the initiation by China of some sort of incursion into Taiwan. But really, in practice, it's just an instigation of it or a provocation of it. Um, and so they're kind of like, you know, willing something into existence. And, you know, it's to a point now where we have hot war in the European theater and it could be feasibly combined with a hot war in the Pacific theater. And, you know, that's kind of a world war type scenario because clearly China and Russia have commingled their interests or and their strategic objectives. So yeah, it's kind of uh, ominous and I feel like there's not really enough awareness of how kind of mind-bendingly destructive of a turn of events that is. Like I, I, we shouldn't just be like kind of casually just chatting about it on a call-in session. It should be like a, <laughs> like a real like emergency that people are like thinking how, how to like avert out of all humanly yeah. possible. But like, yeah. it's just, that's just not the attitude. Instead we get shrieking about TikTok for 
you know, in, uh, in, 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 mm-hmm. Congress is fitted on freaking about TikTok rather than like, averting global cataclysm. Right. My, my one question is, I wonder if they can really convince people to fight in a war with China. I don't know if the sentiment is there. Also, it's not like Iraq. I mean, this is going to be a significant force, I'd imagine, uh, on the other side. I don't know if people are really well, up to that. Yeah, In November 1941, there wasn't much appetite at all in the United States to fight Japan. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but then in December, there was because, you know, something happened. So, I mean. Yeah. Got to leave open the possibility that, that something sort of jarring could happen. I'm not saying that China is getting ready to launch a sneak attack akin to Pearl Harbor or whatever, but you know, it's, who knows? I mean, we can't foresee what could what could you know transpire here. Yeah, you're right, but they're definitely ramping up the irrational fears and just regular people who just glance at the news now and then. Yeah, see these stories and their outrage. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's all. Thanks. Uh, my call. All right. Uh, Gator. Hey, Mike. What's going on? Hey. Um. Well, Richard's Richard's just disappeared now, so he can't. Um... Yeah, he leaves when he sees you're coming up because he he knows that you'll uh, have. A... Yeah, I need I need a, I need a new uh, aftershave, don't I? Um. So, this whole thing about um China and Russia's ascendancy or not. I I I'm, I'm, I don't get where Rich is coming from here. It sounds almost to me like he's literally parroting MSM talking points because, um, uh, and I just I sort of find it slightly odd, really, because I because because you definitely try, uh, doing your own thinking, but I don't sort of interpret what Richard puts out in that way at all. I mean, if we look at uh, China uh, relating to America. Two, two fundamental things I'll say is that the surface narrative that they are in direct um, opposition can't technically really be true whilst their economies are tightly integrated. And one example of that would be to, to ask, who is it who's making all of the antibiotics that the US imports? And that's 90% of your supply. Well, one, the fact is that you're not making them Two, that means that you're dependent on someone. And three, that happens to be China. But then if you if you decided for some reason to, uh, <clears throat> and you were able to make your antibiotics, your own antibiotic supply, then obviously China loses all of that revenue. So there's a balance there between, uh, and, and you can take that and apply that to any um, of the import-export situation between those two nations. But also the idea of whether... America is in a relatively better position, stronger position than China was in any given period of time, partly depends upon the projection of hard and soft power. And there's a pretty straightforward position that's being put forward or observed. And that's that for the US to project power, you basically have 11 carrier battle groups. And then you have whichever nations will allow you to eventually put um, force projection capability in, even on a temporary basis, right? And if you're going to attack China, you're going to need a lot of it around South China Sea. And you're going to need carrier battle groups inside that theatre. But how on earth do you defend against hypersonic missiles like the Kinzhal and the other two um, um, missiles that, that Russia now proves 
work and that they have a ready supply of and they have more of that capability than the US and they are now a strategic and um, military partner of China and China has uh, probably got the same capability as well because as soon as you take out carrier battle groups with a single missile which nobody can block your entire force projection a capability evaporates and then you're down to the the unplayable card of nuclear weapons that 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 is a dynamic that people seem to be ignoring yeah um you know the point that i was making never even came down to some sort of projection as to which of the rival blocks if that's how you kind of divvy up the us in the quote west versus china slash russia which like one had the upper hand or like who is has the headwinds behind them like i wasn't like trying to make a future sort of projected in any way i would just say that if we look at the present circumstances as of today clearly this is the most formidable sort of geopolitical force that has been counterposed against the u.s since at least the night uh you know 1990 with the dissolution of the soviet union and maybe even before that given like the soviet union was kind of in decline at that point anyway um so you know, that was my point i wasn't like trying to use that as a basis to make any sort of prognostications about who was going to have the advantage in five years time or something um but on the point on the point of like people sort of discounting the possibility of conflict between the u.s and china because of the economic co uh, co-mingling or the economic integration well i mean they're pretty rapidly rolling that back if you haven't noticed i mean that was the whole reason why behind that chips act last summer because they want to bring semiconductors to the U.S. or that's like was at least like kind of the nutshell version of the uh, impetus for that legislation. But probably the most significant would be this slew of export controls that the U.S. imposed in December. I mean, you can't export; countries cannot export any of the sort of like technologically relevant. Chi- uh, computer chips to China any longer. Um, so I almost view that as potentially in the same league as when the U.S. imposed the oil embargo on Japan in uh, July of 1941, and that really kind of you know accelerated the momentum towards some sort of confrontation being seen as potentially inevitable between the two countries at that point because of like the like an economic red line was crossed i mean the u.s put these kind of incredibly sort of detrimental sanctions on on japan that japan felt uh jeopardized its sort of future as a state and so saw itself as like an existential uh, crash course uh course yeah and i think there's something potentially analogous there i'm not one to make flippant World War II analogies, but some, you know, one of the troubles with people always prattling about Neville Chamberlain because they like read a Facebook meme once 
is that there actually are some potentially sort of relevant World War II parallels that might be worth invoking at times, just to like kind of just give a bit more perspective on current events and see if like there's anything that could be drawn on to give insight on how kind of these global forces coalesce into some sort of genuinely worldwide conflict and you know i do think there are sort of certain echoes of of that now um that are at least worth being mindful of um Mm. so but you know people spoil the fun by only being able to just uh repeat the words neville and chamberlain over and over again as though that's like a that's like the that's like the complete argument like they don't have to say anything further it's just like oh you're neville chamberlain and then you know argument over Okay, well, I mean, I'm happy to not go down that road if you don't want, but... Um, no, we don't have to go down the road. So, so but, the, but, the, but the... Right, what, what I find um, disingenuous, in, not from you, but from the Western uh, output side, is that what we're told doesn't, doesn't necessarily relate to provable reality. So we're told because the UN had a vote... And, you know, something like roughly two thirds of respondents voted in favor of the US and then and the remainder, a, a small, a relatively small number, something like five to 10 percent actually voted negatively against it. And then the others abstained. That means something. Right. Well, what what does it mean? The UN is a completely ineffective, captured and biased organization anyway, when you come down to it. And that's been proven by the way that the US was exposed in spying on and manipulating swing votes of smaller nations that was a, using using totally illegal techniques against not just african nations but even germany right so we 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 know that the un is theater at best and also because of being some kind of supposed arbiter of international law which is unenforceable that the, the, there is there is literally nothing that the un can do um, of effect when it comes to um, containing the U.S.'s rabid imperialism, uh, even when it gets to the point of total total illegality in Iraq, where if you read up the write-ups of the U.N., Ban Ki-moon said essentially that single act has undermined the legitimacy of the U.N. in, in practice, you know, on the greatest at the greatest level of that anyone's ever done it. And and what does the U.S. do? It has carte blanche to do what it wants in the world. Under that, on that basis, the, the, the referring to the UN for legitimacy or illegitimacy is irrelevant. Okay, that's one. Or appealing to international it's, law as such, I mean, I think is totally sort of irrelevant. And it, just, it is because you can't enforce it. Just, it. It's a hundred percent arbitrary. So why even appeal to it as some sort of source of legitimation for anything? Exactly. And also, in the reality, what are we looking at? We're looking at the nominal sanctioning of Russia, but we're actually looking at more than half of the world not engaging in those sanctions. right? And, and actually, that half of the world or more that isn't is doing what? Well, it's basically willingly engaging in a growing strategic alliance and partnership alliance and trade alliance with Russia and China. So, and those sanctions are also technically violative of international law as well, because sanctions are not supposed to be unilateral. Like, isn't that part of the mm-hmm. UN Charter? I mean, or, you know, the U.S. flouts that so habitually that I don't even think most people have the faintest awareness that that could be uh, an abridgment of international law. But 
in theory, that's supposed to be done. Like, if the sanctions are levied, it's supposed to be done through a collective, deliberative mm. process. And the U.S. doesn't even pretend to attempt to go through that process. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, and, and technically, you could argue it could be argued that just because the the U.S. issues a formal command to the globe, fuck the U.S. People have to do it, right? And and if they don't do it, and the U.S. goes right, Thailand's not engaging in this. We're going to do something to Thailand. Uh, it has to be able to do something to Thailand of meaning. And then if, once it starts doing it to Thailand and it does it, it's got to do it to all of the non-players or the non-conformant, um, non-sanctioners. Well, it can't do that forever in, it, in, in this much, in this greater level of dissent against, against, um, these so-called US driven sanctions. And, and also there's, a, I mean, there's, a, there's long-standing analysis of the effect of Russian, uh, U.S. Russian sanctions going right back into the fall of the USSR. And the conclusion was they don't do anything and they never will. And then sure enough, I mean, I was reading about this before the war started and thinking, well, this isn't going to work, is it? And sure enough, it didn't. The complete opposite effect has been happening, right? Now, that's that appears to be provable reality, which exposes the, the insane propaganda that we're still getting to subjected to which doesn't match you know an interesting myth about sanctions actually is that you know what are these what a counter example that will be given as to why sanctions can actually be good and you should you shouldn't just uh dismiss out of hand that sanctions can serve some sort of like virtuous purpose is the sanctions against south africa right around apartheid that you know reagan was condemned for being um Belated in his uh, uh, enactment of, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there, I've read, um, there's a book on the name is escaping me now, but uh, hold on, I'll, I'll bring it up. But basically, there's a very sort of plausible school of thought which show, which suggests that the sanctions, even related to South Africa, had no impact at all, or had any in any way um, had no real effect on dismantling the apartheid regime, which was supposed to be the whole reason behind them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, very few policies have such a demonstrably disastrous track record as sanctions, but sanctions are still like the default tool of statecraft for mm. the U.S. Well, but then, but then that arguably means that the, 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 the that, that degree of statecraft is literally being is literally based upon a an illusory, illusory theatrical lie, which is essentially we, when we declare st- sanctions against someone, we're marking them out as a pariah. Now, in reality, we'll keep peddling that through the press to put them under um, psychological and marketing pressure. But in reality, the real hard economics of this are it's somehow these countries survive and somehow these countries continue to trade and somehow these countries bypass. That applies to Russia, Iran, uh, probably to Syria uh, right now and um, many other countries. I mean, sanctions work to some extent if you are already incapable of hemming in and isolating a nation, possibly in, in like, for example, Iraq. But that's because there was a coalition the 40 nations who were willing to bomb them anyway in the first place, right? And even then, it wasn't the end for Iraq. Um, and 
to the point where we claimed another false narrative that suddenly Iraq became a global threat to the world because our sanctions were so poor that they didn't stop WMD possession, right? Th th these are all things. And I guess this is where I'm going with this, is that when you look at all of this narrative versus reality, you, you are, we are literally in the Orwellian doublethink era, deep in it, right? And this is why I don't understand how Richard can come out and peddle obvious crap from the mainstream media, which literally does not stand up any Yeah. I don't, wanna, I, don't to to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to psychoanalyze Richard necessarily, but sometimes I do get the sense that he's, um, I, I don't know. He sort of, uh, becomes antagonistic towards certain perspectives just to kind of like, not just for its own sake or not to be contrarian or not to be like a troll or anything, but just because he wants to kind of like, I don't know, like maintain critical distance from all sides even like ones he might be more naturally in congruence with, mm. um, which, you know, I can relate to it in a way because like you, it's almost like a fruitful intellectual exercise to sort of, you know, scrutinize the position that you find yourself in sort of natural inclination to, to agree with. And just cause like you have a certain, I don't know, feeling on a certain day. Sounds a bit arbitrary. I'm not, accusing him of having arbitrary views on things, but um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like he tests out certain perspectives as to, in a way that maybe can seem like he's, you know, becoming this uh, mainstream sort of just uh, regurgitator of conventional wisdom, which I don't think he actually is. It's just sort of like that he's, you know, probing and prying and parsing out certain concepts and fact patterns and what have you, and that's just sort of how he comports himself if that makes sense okay. which it probably doesn't yeah well okay look you know i i i think i understand the, the, what you're trying to say um and but I, and maybe i shouldn't be so brutal in chat sometimes but um where we go from here um i i i think it's fairly straight i think it, it, to some extent the reality is relatively straightforward is that a huge amount of the rhetoric is bullshit and you need to pay attention to the underlying um provable <clears throat> economics and, and in the current case of Ukraine, Poland is still doing ridiculous amounts of trade with Russia, right? Except that Poland wants to enter the war, the, the war theater. And, you know, Radek Sikorsky, Apple and Applebaum's wife has essentially, Husband. you know, sorry, sorry. Yes. Beg your pardon. Sorry. My, my, yeah. over, my, my excessive wokeness slipped in there. I apologize. Um, you know, I met him in Munich. I'll uh, have to, Tell everyone about that at some time. Uh, yeah, that'd be interesting, actually, because, I mean, you know, he's given the game away, right? I mean, he, he, he must be under sanction now, right? And um, <laughs> the, 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 Poland, Poland's been reported to be doing, literally breaking sanctions. And when you look at the... And they're also, um, they're also, they're also spending so much of... They've, they've, they've so radically increased their military spending that it's like crashing their whole yeah. budget. Right. I mean, or like they're they're having some sort of I'm, I'm not going to explain it correctly, but like there's they're so economically out of whack, given the emphasis they put on this drastically outsized military spending that it's like compromising the balance of their books. Yeah. And, and they've said I think they I think the last time I checked this, they said 
their their committed defence spending will go up to something like 116 billion over a number of years, right? Um, their defence budget is 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 a fraction of that, right? So so it's not just doubling; it's 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 possibly quadrupling or more when you look at the statistics stuff on on whose size the defence budget. It's but the thing is that's only been said; the money has not been spent. It's rhetoric; it's not reality, right? And this is this, so it's propaganda until it manifests as reality. And um, look at the oil trade. So and Turkey, Turkey is an interesting one that people aren't talking about. This is how I kind of view Turkey at the moment. It's a little bit North Korean-ish because it's playing off several masters at once. It's got a relationship with Russia, the EU, the US and China. It controls the Straits of Bosphorus in order to get in and out of the Black Sea. Right. It, it, and it has the gas uh, terminal interests, which it wants to grow as well as what it's already actually got. So it's got oil, gas, strategic access and it's a NATO member. Right. So what's it doing? Well, it's basically playing leveraging NATO to say, well, we're not going to sign this off until we get something we want out of Finland, out of Sweden, out of NATO itself. That's one thing. Then it's then it's going to Russia and saying, well, we can involve you. We can be involved in the grain deal. Yeah, we will we, we'll access to the, through the Straits is through us. All the rest of it. It's got huge amounts of political economic power like that, that locks that links itself back into any other nation coming back through the, in and out of those the Straits. And it also obviously connects it straight to China because all of that trade is, is international. Turkey is in a in, in very interesting and also slightly dicey position because if it puts a foot too wrong in one direction or the other, right? Who's who? Which one of these countries is going to bash it? Okay, and 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 it's actually I think it's probably going to be shown that on a net basis, Turkey's geostrategic and financial power has grown radically as a result of this conflict, and then those countries, sort of in its periphery, in its immediate periphery, are going to be rising as another block. And that's what, and that's already been bolstered by Russia and Iraq and China in in trying to basically bring about Middle Eastern peace, irrespective of what the U.S. wants. And and, that, and just to, just a quick point on Turkey, right? Because I think that something comes to mind that I think is worth noting: the International Criminal Court arrest warrant. Right? People yeah. dismiss it as just symbolic. Maybe it is. I actually think it's more than symbolic in that it's clearly one of the vehicles by which regime change is being pursued as the ultimate sort of aspiration for resolving the conflict with Russia. Um, because, like, if you arrest Putin and put him on trial and then throw him in prison, what are you doing while well, you're changing the regime in Russia? I mean, that's just, like, a necessary function of the carrying out of that process. But... Even sort of in the more short term, think of the political decision making that went behind the issuance of that arrest warrant because the U.S. was intimately involved in that through the mechanisms of the State Department and the Justice Department, even though it gives this nominal impression that it's not party to the International Criminal Court, which is true, technically, but they've carved out all these sort of exceptions and back-end uh, Op, uh, means by which the U.S. can actually be a more or less party to the ICC, even though it rejects the ICC's jurisdiction over U.S. nationals. But the political calculation had to do with stigmatizing 
any further engagement with Putin to bring about some potential diplomatic resolution, right? And who would, mm-hmm. what would have been the country's, what would have been maybe the country best situated to do that down the line and which had already successfully brokered certain diplomatic accords between Ukraine and Russia with the Black Sea Initiative? Well, it's Turkey. So now Turkey, the U.S. and the sort of move, the uh, forces behind that ICC sort of, uh, gambit put pretty, you know, potent coercive pressure onto Turkey because now if any sort of Turkish government official, even including Erdogan himself, interfaces with Putin, even if it's for a diplomatic purpose, they're going to get accused of what Blinken accused Xi of doing, which is you know, countenancing a war criminal and even, in a sense, abetting that war criminal and therefore being complicit themselves. And if you're within NATO, and if you, even if you're sort of in an anomalous position like Turkey is within NATO, still you have to, like, manage your relationship with the United States, right, in a way that doesn't just cause it to completely blow up. And now that's a major sort of consideration as to how to to navigate this dynamic between Russia and, and the U.S. for for Turkey, I mean, do they want to accept the the risk of that being able to be labeled, uh, you know, accessory to Putin's war crimes? Yeah, but Putin is not a war criminal until he's been found guilty of being a war. Well, criminal. I mean, that doesn't matter. I mean, it's... The burden of proof is not really a relevant factor there. I mean, uh, Blinken wasn't waiting for the trial to be carried out for to for him to try to impugn Xi by association on account of just the mere indictment. Okay, but let's just consider how this can look to people. I mean, this is how it looks to me. This looks to me like the U.S. in this current state of tumultuous political and economic um period of history is literally finding that many of the, the 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 tool its empirical tools that it has used in the past are not working for many reasons and people even though there's a big wall of propaganda that, that basically a big blanket propaganda that engulfs most people still when you listen to when you listen to how people talk that um it's actually in practical terms this isn't working Right. And it's being it's having egg thrown on its face repeatedly after after it says something that's disproven, says something and it doesn't come good, says something and then proof comes out that they're totally lying. This is the game that the US is involved in because the US is built on having power that enables it to spin narrative in the Karl Rovian sense of we are an empire, we create reality, you wander around scratching your ass thinking about that reality, then we bugger off and create another reality. That's propaganda, right? And the US is in this cycle, but there are plenty of people around who go, um, well, that's not true. And here's the proof. And Russia's doing that all the time. Russia's doing it on a war front, or practically on a war front. Russia's doing it with biolab information. Russia's doing it with... um, essentially in economic partnership with China to show the world another reality of or an alternate reality of how you can do trade and finance and all these other things. And it's also showing that, well, that the sanctions don't work because we're still in business and the US is still is saying, telling you the opposite. All of these things mean 
that the US is in a way, in, in, to me, like a, like a child that's in a sand pit, right? And basically now has to share the sand pit and realizes that screaming its tits off does not mean the other child is buggered off the sand pit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at the term sand pit because the, mm. the American version of that I think would be sandbox. But it's funny okay. thinking of it as like a pit that you get like, like it's a uh, like quicksand or something that you get sucked into. <laughs> um, All right, Gator, so, I'm going to. Uh, you know, I think that's I how it works to me. No, always uh, interesting points. As usual, Cheers, I'm going to go to. Yep, likewise. All right, Shane, you've been patient. I saw you dropped out for a minute and came back, which I think, you know, if anything, sh- sh- shows your resilience. Sorry. Cut out for a second. Are you there? Oh, yeah, I'm back. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, I can hear you now. Shane. Okay, yeah. yeah I was I, just going to – I was complimenting you on your resilience for, for waiting around so long and even popping out and then popping back in and – you're real. Oh, yeah. You're no, real. Actually, you're real. Uh, you're a committed, uh, committed person. Oh, I, I don't know why it just dropped me out for some reason, but I was enjoying okay. the conversation, <laughs> anyways. Um. Yeah, dude. Have you been keeping track of like the bank stuff much at all? Uh, you know, peripherally, I don't. You know. I feel as though I have enough of like like a sophisticated understanding to really come up with like intelligent, unique sort of takes on things. But, you know, I know the basic facts of the situation. Sure. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm not particularly like super well-versed about this stuff, but I've just kind of been keeping track of it because it seemed, you know, there were a few aspects of it that seemed pretty obviously like i don't want to say like disconcerting but you know just like these developments happen and just stuff seems like super duper obvious and one of the things that seemed super obvious to me was like this you know like this is like the full socialization what do you mean by socialization with what's going on with china because this looks like like a total cleavage from like anything that can be considered like the end of history Western liberal order that we were supposed to have been like insisting the rest of the world get on the same page as us about. And now we're like, oh, yeah, no, that thing is no longer like actually what's going on. So, you know, like what's going on with Russia and China, you know, they're kind of coalescing into this one thing at the exact same moment that like these, you know, all of these different financial situations are like really coming to like this, I just this black and white head, right? Like it's like credit suites. I mean, it's not are like they coming to, are they really coming to a head though? Or I mean, I thought, uh, and I, I don't know for sure. I'm actually just asking genuinely. I, I kind of was of the, I was under the impression that, the sort of worst of it had been headed off or, you know, the. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, yeah. The situation, situation had been stabilized. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, but that stabilization has a lot of like implications that, you know, like 
I'm kind of like you, it sounds like from what you're saying, it's like, I'm not like an economist or anything, anything like that. But, you know, having like a vaguely Bernie left background and then, kind yeah. of, you know, seeing some of the stuff and, you know, you just, it basically what happened was, you know, that everybody understands the FDIC thing. It's there like, yeah, yeah. when you're submitting a check, the 250. So like, like yesterday, the big thing was about the interest rate hike. You know, Jay Powell did the interest rate hike, and he was all like, the system's fine. And mm-hmm. then Janet Yellen was all like, well, we're not planning on fully insuring through the FDIC, like, every deposit. And Bloomberg today, you know, all of their people were like, oh, my God, can you believe Wait, there, there, there are serious proposals going around that every, that every deposit is going to be fully insured? I saw... Elizabeth you know, Warren market, saying it should be up to five wants. million, and I thought that was like the upper limit of like what the proposals are at the moment. Okay, so that's what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie are saying, right? The markets are also calling for this. Like, the markets were also they're already calling in a rate decrease, right? So they're buying these bonds that are like three, five, ten years out or whatever. They're pricing in a decrease the same way Silicon Valley Bank did. You know, that's what fucked Silicon Valley is that they were pricing mm-hmm. in these rate decreases and then they didn't happen. And, right. every, and that's where like people are like, well, that's you guys were like fucked for that. PIMCO is doing the same thing. And they they were like one of the largest holders of the credit suites. Like basically, remember mortgage-backed securities and credit default yeah. swaps? Yes. They, yes. They basically that I did eventually figure out what, they, what the, the deal AT1. with was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just like an insurance. So these AT1 bonds, which the it was the Swiss government made this new classification. And it's like this big deal in the financial markets because like bondholders are usually the first to get paid out when a bank gets liquidated. But now they're, the Swiss government was like, no, all of the shareholders of the bank got paid out before these bondholders. And if you look, I, I'm, I'm trying to convey like an intuitive understanding because I'm, I'm trying yeah. to come to one myself. Like it seems to me like bonds are kind of the way that like really wealthy people get that tap on the federal reserve money printing machine. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's like, the government knows that it's going to go in debt. So it needs somebody to spot the bonds and then the bonds issue this like percentage return. And, you know, to like a normal person, you're like a percent here, percent there. Like that doesn't sound like that much. And like, it's more than enough for these people, you know, like that's how they're really making like, like that's how they're getting like the leg up on the economy. And so like basically after 2008, the government was like, yeah, we're going to be printing money for you people like crazy. So you just have to have another level of insurance. So PIMCO held 800 million of these AT1 bonds that got completely wiped out. So like you're hearing that you're like 800 billion. That sounds like a lot, right? Like that's like what, like four times worth or four times more than what Elon Musk might be able to get fortune to believe he's worth or something. You know what I mean? You're like 800 billion. That sounds like a lot. It's like not even a percentage of what PIMCO is. They're like $1.78 trillion. 800, 800 billion, like, as it turns out, like, isn't that, or sorry, 
800, yeah, it, it, it was 17, 17 billion. So it was only 800 million, 800 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like, I, it's like, okay, I guess. That's and how, and how do you, how do you figure, money. I mean, how do you figure this all adds up in terms of like geopolitical shifts? I mean, do you think that there's some sort of through line there or is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, cause it's like, so basically like what, uh, I'm focusing on PIMCO because I think they're really interesting. Like, you know, they're buying all these AT1 bonds from Credit Suisse, which is basically like them saying, like, we're underwriters insurance for like, if the loans that you're giving out, if those go belly up, like, here's the money for it. And that got paid out to the shareholders, which is different than it usually is. Usually bondholders are first, but it's kind of like, as this turns out, this was like an insure. it's a speeding ticket. Like the entire AT1 bond market as it applies to Credit Suisse, going out. That was a speeding ticket on all this development that's been going on. Okay, so who funds that speeding ticket? The Federal Reserve, right? Because they were paying the money for the bonds in the first place. So to me, what this represents is like the entire global economy or Western economy, everything that the West, we've just decided, oh, that's just going to keep on going the way it is. Like we will just print money to make sure that 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 these different situations all get paid out. So like like the FDIC thing, for example, we, you you know, as it applied to Silicon Valley Bank, like Roku, Kathy Woods thing, they had like five hundred million or something in there. It was like some crazy amount, and like the whole reason for it was because the executives themselves were getting these preferred financing deals because it was uninsured money that they were keeping in right so it's like instead of paying for the insurance we'll just give you these sick rates like now the entire economy is calling for that like all of these different finance bros are basically saying like oh yeah that's the thing so when janet yellen went out yesterday and was like at the same time as jerry powell and was all like yeah we're not really sure about insuring and that's where like my mind gets blown with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Like, fuck, we don't need FDI insurance. Like that should not be the solution to all of this. Like when I hear them saying that, oh, we need to, you know, insure all these accounts for up to 5 million, all I'm hearing is like, oh yeah, the, the Federal Reserve money printing machine is redlining right now. Like there's more than enough ink in there to print off enough, a bunch of money for all of these problems. Like do you get what I'm saying? Like it shouldn't, we shouldn't be worried about these banks failing. It should be more of an issue of like, well, why are we worried about these banks failing? Yeah. Because if we do that, we're just, we're just like, it's more calcification to the class structure that we have, I guess is what I'm saying. Like they make it sound like, Oh, well we're helping small businesses. And it's like, no, you're just, you're just telling all of the different, all the bullshit that makes the class structures in America well, yeah, I mean, I right think, now, that it's nothing's changed. I mean, as, as I understand it, and I'm not going to try to restate everything that you just laid out there because I have to, you know, give it more thought, but if at bottom it exposes some sort of just like fundamentally askew sort of aspect of the economic system that had been sort of shrouded until now, or if there's like something that's Again, foundationally 
off or foundationally even maybe fraudulent, you know, that's kind of unraveling now as to the sort of basis of the financial and economic order as we underst- have understood it, then, you know, you could, you could see how that could be something that's sort of progressing in tandem with these wider geopolitical shifts and why yeah, there, sure. there would be this, you know, momentum away from just kind of default uh, affiliation with the U.S.-led order as like the stable and reliable and just sort of, uh, you know. Well, you posted you posted you know, that yeah. funny clip of Joe Biden giving Mindy Kaling some medal. Yeah. And it's yeah. Like, I, I just feel like... On the same, on the same day that like that, that Putin and she had yeah. like, had the, the climax of their meeting of all of this because what happened yesterday oh the rate you know they were like oh we are hiking the rate like they hiked the rate 25 basis points that's not a lot like everybody's acting like this rate hike was something crazy that's 25 basis points would have been a rounding error 20 years ago you know like i I just can't imagine that like Putin and G aren't looking across to America going like everything's broken. Like they couldn't do a 25 basis point hike without everything going to shit. Or, I mean, it's not just that basic. I mean, what? Cause we're at a couple percent now and everybody, all the financial markets are acting like this is crazy, but this is like, this was business as usual up until 2000. 2008 like these rate hikes were normal in the economy it's just in in in, so bernie and elizabeth talking about you know the fdic insurance like just to me i'm like who like these people are just gone like bernie and elizabeth warren are just like they're not irrelevant like brianna joy gray posted that thing about bernie and his memoir being all like oh well they like you know they all and it's like dude bernie rolled over just as hard for joe biden as pete Buttigieg did you know, wait. What, what was the thing that she? What What did Brianna mention from the memoir exactly? That That excerpt where Bernie was basically recognizing that Pete and every and Amy Klobuchar and whoever else that they all dropped out at the same time against him, and then he mentioned that Elizabeth Warren chose not to endorse him at a point when he felt like it could have tipped the balance. Oh, okay, yeah. And I'm, you know, you just you hear these things, and it's like, okay, so he's. He's all in on Ukraine. He, it sounds like he's all in on like the Federal Reserve plan. <laughs> I mean, it's so so then you you look back and you're like, anything that he's saying about student debt relief or Medicare for all, that's all under like, well, let's just use the Federal Reserve to print this money to make things super fucked up to make sure that the class systems are still the same. And it's like, and we're supposed to believe that he's like some kind of like dangerous leftist. Like, there's no. There's just no like, I don't know. It, it's just it's just funny to me that it, well, I mean, him when these it seems like Medicare for all fell off the map the minute that a Democrat got into office. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, because like in the first place, it was just like an impotent idea. I mean, I was all enraptured in it at the time, you know, because you're like, oh, this sounds normal. But then, just like Bernie keeps going along with Joe Biden and the DNC, and you're like, it's just you just get this feeling of like. Oh, okay. That's what Medicare for all was. Like, it wasn't <laughs> anything that like had any sort of like 
it was it was just a plan on how to use the Federal Reserve. It was an upstart plan that like people finance that we finance that plan twenty seven dollars at a time. Like I'm patting myself super hard on the back about it now. In in Bernie can't bring himself to be like, hey, like Ukraine maybe isn't good. I I don't know. Like what I, I guess that'll be like my parting question to yeah. you is like what do you think like what do you how do you see like the post left discourse coming? Because it just it doesn't feel good to me. <laughs> or like the the post Bernie thing. Like what does that turn into? Well, it seems like it hasn't turned into much of anything since the Bernie experience kind of dissolved into nothingness. Um, it seems like it's in like a period of stasis. You know, I mean, for better or, wor- or worse, uh, uh, political movements in the United States tend to be like galvanized by a, a figure. The figure who, you know, seizes on a certain kind of unique momentum at a certain period of time and then like that's how the movement if you want to call it that or the sort of energy gets organized and there's really nobody I think that you could envision at the moment who could be sort of like a you know a a nexus of that kind of energy such that there could be like even an attempt made to kind of like fashion some new program for like the left or post left or any kind of like ideological sorting. And also given that like there we're in a period of now just sort of geopolitical frenzy, that kind of just, I think is inherently going to constrict the range of political possibility in that, like you're not going to have, yeah, you know, Fewer and fewer people are going to be willing to buck that consensus because, yeah, yeah. there's there's more and there's a higher and higher going to be a higher and higher cost to buck consensus and to engage in any kind of like ideological experimentation, and so you know it's going to continue to to narrow the range of political possibility that I think kind of at least in recent history sort of peaked in terms of the expansiveness of it probably around like 2016 or so then it kind of gradually the window of opportunity kind of gradually uh narrowed um and now i think it's pretty much slammed shut (laughs) yeah so well hey michael like just i really appreciate like all of your anti-war stuff like china and russia and like hosting conversations like this so yeah all right thanks shane yeah um and Yep, Brian. I uh, I apologize. I'm about to probably um, pass out into pure exhaustion and drowsiness. So I'm gonna use my my prerogative to end the room, even though you're there, and I appreciate you being there. But hey, sometimes I have to look out for myself. All right, bye bye, everybody. <laughs>